Blog Talk Radio. show uh, with Vicky, and I only had a small thing that I did, which was a, uh, a song lyric called uh, uh, The Man Who Wrote Dining Boy, and which I talked like. to Stephen, which was good, you know, uh, it was a good good story, good poem, but I asked uh, Stephen, uh, you know, could I do one more, and so I'm, I'm going to do a story tonight. By Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson, you should know the name. He wrote uh, several of the best episodes for Twilight Zone. Uh, uh, his novel uh, Hell House was the uh, um, was the source material for the '70s film The uh, Legend of Hell House uh, with Ryan McDowell and Carl Devil. Go ahead. When he wrote Hell House. Uh... The, his editors wanted to call it Hill House to tie it into the haunting of Hill House, blah, blah, blah. But Matherson didn't want to do such a blatant ripoff, so he just changed one of the letters, and he had it in his contract that it would have to stick. You know, and and he has admitted that it was certainly influenced by uh, the haunting of Hill House, and that he wrote it sort of as his version of it, but it is completely different, uh, though the setup is nearly the same. But one of the things that Richard Matheson wrote, there's a very very famous, uh, um, well, he, he did versions no. of Dracula. Well, so. tell him okay, I'm not going to tell the story you're going to read after you read the story. Okay, there we go. Okay, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the way to do it. But so to really go into a little bit farther, I hope you don't mind, Carl. The difference between Hell House and The Haunting is that Hell House keeps it real. There's a time code throughout the movie, is and isn't that how the chapters are labeled too? Absolutely. Yeah. And what I mean, time code, it's like real. It's like 12 a.m., Sunday, the da 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 da. And he also sets it during Christmas and right after, yeah. which is really interesting. And um, don't forget, he was the first horror author to take horror and take it out of the Gothic castles. And put yes, it into fifty suburbia. Most and famously that would actually, with Well, yeah, yeah go ahead. Go. <laughs> and, and that particularly, if you know a movie called Stir of Echoes, 
That's also based on Richard Matheson. So the and gentleman has lit. a lot of cred. He has a lot of cred in this. So go well, ahead. He wrote Steve, my favorite up. Twilight Zone episode. Okay, which is? The Laughing Man. And which one is that? The one where the guy gets stranded into the castle, and there's the guy behind the deck. The guy trapped behind the door. And he says that oh. the owner of the castle's crazy and locked him up. Right, I remember that, yes. And he's the devil. And, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, and there's yes. a longer version of it that came out in the movie earlier this year that I heard was supposed to be really good, but I haven't got a chance to see it. Called I Trapped the Devil which is just a longer version of that story. Mm-hmm. And then there's, of course, Terror at 30,000 Feet, where if you don't know that and you're a horror fan, you should be slapped. And, and let's not forget, you know, we, we talk about Chucky. Matheson also wrote Talking Tina. I am Talking Tina, and I don't like you. Remember... Was that yeah, you were with me at Monster Bash that year we had the hard on for that uh Oh, you kidding? I, I saw that and I was just like, Oh, I so want this <laughs> Yeah. And on the back of it there is a nod to the Simpsons too. Yes. It has a good switch and an evil switch. Nice. That so, was one so of the better episodes. Simpsons Treehouse of Horror, too. Oh, yeah. Well, I've always liked the Treehouse of Horror ones. I, I think they're a lot of fun. Yeah, do you remember you know, the first and, three years they did Terror at 30,000 feet with uh, Bart on the bus with the little gremlin trying to yeah, tear it up? Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, Talking Tina with yep. the killer Krusty doll. And you can you can you can thank all all that to Richard Matheson, who and wrote that's the story. His stories are easily translatable. You don't have to change and anything about them to update them. No, no, no. And you'll see that as I read this. Um, so to get on with this, the story is called Prey, P-R-E-Y. And uh, as I read the first sentence, you may know. What was what this what movie or, or was based on this? Okay, so this is called Prey by Richard Matheson. It's from a collection called Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. Okay, and here we go with Prey. Amelia arrived at her apartment at six fourteen, hanging her coat in the hall closet. She carried the small package into the living room and sat on the sofa. She nudged off her shoes while she unwrapped the package on her lap. The wooden box resembled a casket. Amelia raised its lid and smiled. It was the ugliest dog sh- uh, doll she had ever seen. Seven inches long and carved from wood, it had a skeletal body and an oversized head. Expression was maniacally fierce. Its pointed teeth completely bared, its glaring eyes protuberant. It clutched an eight-inch spear in its right hand. A length of fine gold chain was wrapped around its body from the shoulders to the knees. A tiny scroll was wedged between the doll and the inside of the wall of its box. 
<clears throat> Amelia picked it up and unrolled it. There was handwriting on it. This is he who kills, it began. He is a deadly hunter. Amelia smiled as she read the rest of the words. Arthur would be pleased. The thought of Arthur made her turn to look at the telephone on the table beside her. After a while, she sighed and set the wooden box on the sofa. Lifting the telephone to her lap, she picked up the receiver and dialed the number. Her mother answered. Hello, Mom, Amelia said. Haven't you left yet? Her mother asked. Amelia stilled herself. Mom, I know it's Friday night, she started, but she couldn't finish. There was silence on the line. Amelia closed her eyes. Mom, please, she thought. She swallowed. There's this man, she said. His name is Arthur Breslow. He's a high school teacher. You aren't coming, her mother said. Amelia shivered. It's his birthday, she said. She opened her eyes and looked at the doll. I sort of promised him we'd spend the evening together. Her mother was silent. There aren't any good movies playing anyway tonight, Amelia's mind continued. We could go tomorrow night, she said. Her mother was silent. Mom? Now even Friday's night's too much for you. Mom, I see you two, three nights a week to visit when you have your own room here. Mom, let's not start in that again. I'm not a child, she thought. Stop treating me as though I were a child. How long have you been seeing him, her mother asked. Oh, a month or so, without telling me? I had every intention of telling you, Amelia's head was starting to throb. I will not get a headache, she told herself. She looked at the doll. It seemed to be glaring at her. He's a nice man, Mom. Her mother didn't speak. Amelia felt her stomach muscles drawing taut. I won't be able to eat tonight, she thought. She was conscious suddenly of huddling over the telephone. She forced herself to sit erect. I'm 33 years old, she thought. Reaching out, she lifted the doll from its box. You should see what I'm giving him for his birthday. I found it in a curio shop on 3rd Avenue. It's a genuine Zuni fetish doll, extremely rare. Arthur is a buff on anthropology. That's why I got it for him. There was a silence on the line. All right, don't talk, Amelia thought. It's a hunting fetish, she continued, trying hard to sound untroubled. Supposed to have the spirit of a Zuni hunter trapped inside it. There's a golden chain around it to prevent the spirit. She couldn't think of the word, ran a shaking finger over her chin. From uh, escaping, I guess. His name is He Who Kills. You should see his face. She felt warm tears trickling down her cheeks. Have a good time, her mother said, hanging up. Amelia stared at the receiver, listening to the dial tone. Why is it always like this, she thought. She dropped the receiver onto its cradle and set aside the telephone. The darkening room looked blurry to her. She stood the doll on the coffee table edge and pushed to her feet. I'll take my bath now, she told herself. I'll meet him and we'll have a lovely time. She walked across the living room. A lovely time, her mind repeating emptily. She knew it wasn't possible. Oh, Mom, she thought. She clenched her fists in a helpless fury as she went into the bedroom. In the living room, the doll fell off the table edge and landed head down and the spear point sticking into the carpet braced the doll's legs in the air. That fine gold chain began to slither downward. It was almost dark when Amelia came back into the living room. She had taken off her clothes and was wearing her terry cloth robe. 
the bathroom water was running into the tub. She sat on a sofa and placed the telephone on her leg. For several minutes, she stared at it. At last, with a heavy sigh, she looked at the receiver and dialed a number. Arthur, she said when he answered, yes. Amelia knew the tone, pleasant but suspecting. She couldn't speak. Your mother, Arthur finally said. A cold, heavy sinking in her stomach. So our night together. Every Friday, she stopped and waited. Arthur didn't speak. I've mentioned it before, she said. I know you've mentioned it, he said. Amelia rubbed at her temple. She's still running your life, isn't she? Amelia tensed. I don't want to hurt her feelings anymore. My moving out was hard enough on her. I don't want to hurt her feelings either, Arthur said. But how many birthdays a year do I have? We planned on this. I know. She felt her stomach muscles tightening again. Are you really going to let her do this to you one Friday night out of the whole year? Amelia closed her eyes. She, her lips moved soundlessly. I just can't hurt her feelings anymore, she thought. She swallowed. She's my mother, she said. Very well. I'm sorry. I was looking forward to it, but he paused. I'm sorry, and he eased and he hung up quietly. Amelia sat in silence for a long time, listening to the dial tone. She started when the recorded voice said loudly, Please hang up. Putting the receiver down, she replaced the telephone on its table. So much for my birthday present, she thought, would be pointless to give it to Arthur now. She reached out, switching on the table lamp. She'd take the ball, doll back tomorrow. The doll was not on the coffee table. Looking down, Amelia saw the gold chain lying on the carpet. She eased off the sofa wedge onto her knees and picked it up, dropping it into the wooden box. The doll was not beneath the coffee table. Bending over, Amelia felt around underneath the sofa. She cried out, jerking back her hand. Straightening up, she turned to the lamp and looked at her hand. There was something wedged between the index fingernails. She shivered as she plucked it out. It was the head of the doll's spear. She dropped it into the box and put the finger in her mouth. Bending over again, she felt more cautiously beneath the sofa. She couldn't find it all. Standing with a weary groan, she started pulling one end of the sofa from the wall. It was terribly heavy. She recalled the night that she and her mother had shopped for furniture. She wanted to furnish the apartment in Danish modern. Mother had always insisted on this heavy maple sofa and had been on sale. Amelia grunted as she dragged it from the wall. She was conscious of the water running in the bathroom. She better turn it off soon. She looked at the section of the carpet she cleared, catching sight of the spear shaft. The doll was not beside it. Amelia picked it up and set it on the coffee table. The doll was caught beneath the sofa, she decided, and she moved the sofa. She had moved the doll as well. She thought she heard a sound behind her, fragile, skittering. Amelia turned. The sound had stopped. She felt a chill move up her backs of her legs. It's he who kills, she said with a smile. He's taken off his chain and gone. She broke off suddenly. There had definitely been a noise inside the kitchen, a metallic, rasping sound. Amelia swallowed nervously. What's going on, she thought. She walked across the living room and reached into the kitchen, switching on the light. She peered inside. 
Everything looked normal. Her gaze moved falteringly across the stove, the pan of water on it, the table, the chair, the drawers, and cabinet doors all shut. The electric clock, the small refrigerator with the cookbook lying on top of it, the picture on the wall, the knife rack fastened to the cabinet side, its small knife missing. Amelia stared at the knife rack. Don't be silly, she told herself. She put the knife in the drawer, that's all. Stepping into the kitchen, she pulled down the silverware drawer. The knife was not inside it. Another sound made her look down quickly at the floor. She gasped in shock. For several moments, she could not react. And stepping to the doorway, she looked in the living room. Her heartbeat thudding. Had it been imagination? She was sure she had seen a movement. Oh, come on, she said. She made a disparaging sound. She hadn't seen a thing. Across the room, the lamp went out. Amelia jumped so startledly, she rammed her right elbow against the George jam. Crying out, she clutched the elbow with her left hand, eyes closed momentarily, her face a mask of pain. She opened her eyes and looked into the darkened living room. Come on, she told herself in aggravation. <clears throat> Three sounds plus a burned-out bulb does not add up to anything as idiotic as she willed away the thought. She had to turn the water off. Leaving the kitchen, she started for the hall. She rubbed her elbow, grimacing. There was another sound. Amelia froze. Something was coming across the carpet towards her. She looked down dumbly. No, she thought. She saw it then. A rapid movement near the floor. There was a glint of metal instantly, a stabbing pain in her right calf. Amelia gasped. She kicked out blindly. Pain again. She felt warm blood running down her skin. She turned and lunged into the hall. The throw rug slipped beneath her, and she fell against the wall, hot pain lancing in her right ankle. She clutched at the wall to keep from falling, and went sprawling on her side. She thrashed around with a sob of fear. More movement, dark on dark. Pain in her left calf, then her right again. Amelia cried out. Something brushed along her thigh. She scrabbled back and lurched back blindly, almost falling again. She fought for balance, reaching out convulsively. The heel of her left hand rammed against the wall, supporting her. She twisted round and rushed into the darkened bedroom. Slamming the door, she fell against it, panting. Something banged against it on the other side, something small and near the floor. Amelia listened, trying not to breathe out so loudly. She pulled carefully at the mob to make sure that the latch had caught. When there was no further sounds outside the door, she backed toward the bed. She started as she bumped against the mattress edge. Slumping down, she grabbed the extension phone and pulled it to her lap. Whom should she call? The police? They think her mad. Mother? She was too far off. She was dialing Arthur's number by the light from the bathroom when the doorknob started turning. Suddenly, her fingers couldn't move. She stared across the darkened room. The door latch clicked. The telephone slipped off her lap. She heard it thudding onto the carpet as the door swung open. Something dropped from the outside knob. Amelia jerked back, pulling up her legs. A shadowy form was scurrying across the carpet toward the bed. She gaped at it. It's not true, she thought. She stepped at the tugging of her bedspread. It was climbing up to get her. No, she thought. It isn't true. She couldn't move. She stared at the edge of the mattress. 
Something that looked like a tiny head appeared. Amelia twisted around with a cry of shock, flung herself against the bed, and jumped on the floor. Plunging into the bathroom, she spun around and slammed the door, gaping, gasping at the pain in her ankle. She barely thumbed in the button on the doorknob when something banged against the bottom of the door. Amelia heard a noise like a scratching of a rat. Then it was still. She turned and leaned across the tub. The level of water was almost to the overflow drain. She, as she twisted shut the faucets, she saw drops of blood falling into the water. Straightening up, she turned to the medicine cabinet mirror above the sink. She caught her breath in horror as she saw the gash across her neck. She pressed a shaking hand against it. Abruptly, she became of the where the pain in her legs and looked down. She'd been slashed along the calves of both legs. Blood was running down her ankles, dripping off the edges of her feet. Amelia started crying. Blood ran between the fingers of her hand against her neck. It trickled down her wrist. She looked at the reflection through a glaze of tears. Something in her aroused her wretchedness, a look of terrified surrender. No, she thought. She reached out for the medicine cabinet door, opening it, she pulled out the iodine, gauze, and tape. She dropped the cover of the toilet seat and sank down gingerly. Was struggled to remove the stopper of the iodine bottle. She had to wrap it hard against the sink three times before it opened. The burning of the antiseptic on her cast made her gasp. Amelia clenched her teeth and she wrapped gauze around her right leg. A sound made her twist toward the door. She saw the knife blade being jammed beneath it trying to stab my feet, she thought. She thinks I'm standing there. She felt unreal to be considering its life. This is he who kills, the scroll flashed suddenly across her mind. He is a deadly hunter. Amelia stared at the poking knife blade. God, she thought. Hastily, she bandaged both her legs and stood and, looking into the mirror, cleaned the blood from her neck with a wash rag. She swapped some iodine along the edges of the gas hissing at the fiery pain. She whirled at the new sound, heartburn leaping. Stepping to the door, she leaned down, listening hard. There was a faint metallic noise inside the knob. The drawl was trying to unlock it. Amelia backed off slowly, staring at the knob. She tried to visualize the doll. Was it hanging from the knob by one arm, using the other to poke inside the knob lock with the knife? The vision was insane. She felt an icy prickling on the back of her neck. I mustn't let it in, she thought. A hoarse cry pulled her lips back as the doorknob button popped out. Reaching impulsively, she dragged the bath towel off the rack. The doorknob turned. The latch clicked free. The door began to open. Suddenly, the doll came darting in and moved so quickly that it flickered, blurred before Amelia's eyes. She swung the towel down hard as though it were a huge bug rushing at her. The doll was knocked against the wall. Amelia heaved the towel on top of it and lurched across the floor, gasping in pain at her ankle. Flinging open the door, she lunged into the bedroom. She was almost to the whole door when her ankle gave. She put, pitched across the carpet with a cry of shock. There was a noise behind her. Twisting around, she saw the doll come through the bathroom doorway like a jumping spider. She saw the knife blade glinting in the light. Then the doll was in the shadows, coming at her fast. Amelia scrabbled back. She glanced over her shoulder, saw the closet, and banked it 
backed into the darkness, clawing for the doorknob. Pain again, an icy slashing at her foot. Amelia screamed and heaved back. Reaching up, she yanked the top coat down and fell across the doll. She jerked down everything in reach. The doll was buried underneath a mound of blouses, skirts, and dresses. Amelia pitched across the moving pile of clothes. She forced herself to stand and limp to the hall as quickly as she could. The sound of thrashing underneath clothes faded from her hearing. She hobbled to the door. Unlocking it, she pulled the knob. The door was held. Amelia reached up quickly to the bolt. It had been shot. She tried to pull it free. It wouldn't budge. She clawed with it at a sudden terror. It was twisted out of shape. No, she muttered. She was trapped. Oh, God, she started pounding on the door. Please help me, help me. Found in the bedroom. Amelia whirled and lurched across the living room. She dropped to her knees beside the sofa, feeling for the telephone, but her fingers trembled so much that she couldn't dial the numbers. She began to sob, then twisted around with a strangled cry. The doll was rushing at her from the hallway. Amelia grabbed an ashtray from the coffee table and hurled it at the doll. She threw a vase, a wooden box, a figurine. She couldn't hit the doll. It reached her, starting jabbing at her legs. Amelia reared up blindly and fell across the coffee table. Rolling to her knees, she stood again. She staggered toward the hall, shoving over furniture to stop the doll. She toppled the chair and the table. Picking up a lamp, she hurled it to the floor. She backed into the hall and, spinning, rushed into the closet, slammed the door shut. She held the knob with rigid fingers. Waves of hot breath pulsed against her face. She cried out as the knife was jabbed beneath the door, a sharp point sticking into one of her toes. She shuffled back, shifting her grip on the knob. Her robe hung open. She could feel a trickle of blood between her breasts. Her legs felt numb with pain. She closed her eyes. Someone, please help, she thought. She stiffened as the doorknob started turning in her grasp. Her flesh went cold. It couldn't be stronger than she. It couldn't be. Amelia tightened her grip. Please, she thought. The side of her head bumped against the front edge of the suitcase on the shelf. The thought exploded in her mind. Holding the mob with her right hand, she reached up, fumbling with her left. The suitcase clasps were open. With a sudden wrench, she turned the doorknob shoving at the door as hard as possible, and rushed away from her. She heard it bang against the wall. The doll thumped down. Amelia reached up, hauling down her suitcase, yanking open the lid. She fell to her knees in a closet doorway, holding the suitcase like an open book. She braced herself, eyes wide, teeth clenched together. She felt the doll's weight as it banged against the suitcase bottom. Instantly, she slammed the lid and threw the suitcase flat. Falling across it, she held it shut until her shaking hands could fasten the clasp. The sound of them clicking into place made her sob with relief. She shoved away the suitcase. It slid across the hall and bumped against the wall. Amelia struggled to her feet, trying not to listen to the frenzied kicking and scratching inside the suitcase. She switched on the hall light and tried to open the bolt. It was hopelessly wedged. She turned and limped across the living room, glancing at her legs. The bandages were hanging loose. 
Both legs were streaked with caking blood, some of the gashes still bleeding. She felt at her throat. The cut was still wet. Amelia pressed her shaking lips together. She'd get to a doctor soon enough. Removing the ice pick from the kitchen drawer, she returned to the hall. Cutting sound made her look toward the suitcase. She caught her breath. The knife blade was protruding from the suitcase wall, moving up and down with a sawing motion. Amelia stared at it. She felt as though her body had been turned to stone. She limped to the suitcase and knelt beside it, looking with revulsion at the sawing blade. It was smeared with blood. She tried to pinch it with the fingers of her left hand pulled out. Blade was twisted, jerked down, and she cried out, snatching back her hand. There was a deep slice in her thumb. Blood ran down across her palm. Amelia pressed a finger to her robe. She felt as though her mind was going blank. Pushing to her feet, she limped back to the door and started prying at the bolt. She couldn't get it loose. Her thumb began to ache. She pushed the ice pick underneath the bolt socket and tried to force it off the wall. The ice pick point broke off. Amelia slipped and almost fell. She pushed up, whimpering. There was no time, no time. She looked around in desperation. The window. She could throw the suitcase out. She visually visualized it tumbling through the darkness. Hastily, she dropped the ice pick, turning toward the suitcase. She froze. The, door, the doll had forced its head and shoulders through the rent in the suitcase wall. Amelia watched as it was struggling to get out. She felt paralyzed. The twisting doll was staring at her. No, she thought it isn't true. The doll jerked free its legs and jumped onto the floor. Amelia turned around and ran into the living room. Her right foot landed on a shard of broken crockery. She felt it cutting deep into her heel and lost her balance. Landing on her side, she thrashed around. The doll came leaping at her. She could see the knife blade glint. She kicked out wildly, knocking back the doll. Lunging to her feet, she reeled into the kitchen world and started pushing shut the door. Something kept it from closing, Amelia thought. She heard a screaming in her mind. Looking down, she saw the knife in a tiny wooden hand. The doll's arm was wedged between the door and the jam. Amelia shoved against the door with all her might aghast at the strength of which the door was pushed the other way. There was a cracking noise. A fierce smile pulled her lips back, and she pushed berserkly at the door. The screaming in her mind grew louder, drowning out the sound of splintering wood. The knife blade stabbed. Amelia dropped to her knees and tugged at it. She pulled the knife into the kitchen, seeing the wooden hand and wrist fall from the handle of the knife. With a gagging noise, she struggled to her feet and dropped the knife into the sink. Door slammed hard against her side. The doll rushed in. Amelia jerked away with it. Picking up the chair, she slung it toward the doll. It jumped aside, then ran around the fallen chair. Amelia snatched the pan of water off the stove and hurled it down. The pan clanged loudly off the floor, spraying water on the doll. She stared at the doll. It wasn't coming after her. It was trying to climb the sink leaping up and clutching at the counter with one hand. And once the knife, she thought, it has to have its weapon. She knew abruptly what to do. Stepping over to the stove, she pulled down the broiler doll door and twisted the knob on all the way. She heard the puffing detonation of the gas as she turned to grab the doll. She cried out as the doll began to kick and twist. 
It's maddening thrashing, flinging her from one side of the kitchen to the other. The screaming filled her mind again, and suddenly she knew it was the spirit of the doll that screamed. She slid and crashed against the table, wrenched herself around, and dropping to her knees before the stove, flung the doll inside. She slammed the door and fell against it. The door was almost driven out. Amelia pressed her shoulders, then her back against it, trying to brace her legs against the wall. She tried to ignore the pounding scrabble of the doll inside the boiler. She watched the red blood pulsing from her heel. The smell of burning wood began to reach her, and she closed her eyes. The door was getting hot. She sifted carefully. The kicking and pounding filled her ears. The screaming flooded through her mind. She knew her back would get burned, but she didn't dare to move. The smell of burning wood grew worse. Her foot ached terribly. Melia looked up at the electric clock on the wall. It was four minutes to seven. She watched this red second hand revolving slowly. A minute passed. The screaming in her mind was fading now. She shifted uncomfortably, gritting her teeth against the burning heat on her back. Another minute passed. The kicking and pounding had stopped. The screaming faded more and more. The smell of burning wood had filled the kitchen. There was a pall of gray smoke in the air. That they'll see, Amelia thought. Now that it's over, they'll come to help. That's the way it always is. She started to ease herself away from the boiler door, ready to throw her weight back against it if she had to. She turned around and got on her knees. The reek of charred wood made her nauseated. She had to know, though, reaching out, she pulled down the door. Something dark and stifling rushed across her head. She heard the screaming in her mind once more as the hotness flooded over her and into her. It was the scream of victory now. Amelia stood and turned off the broiler. She took a pair of ice tongs from the door and lifted the blackened twist of wood. She dropped it into the sink and ran water over it till the smoke had stopped. Then she went into the bedroom, picked up the telephone, and depressed its cradle. After a moment, she released the cradle and dialed her mother's number. This is Amelia, Mom, she said. I'm sorry I acted the way I did. I want us to spend the evening together. It's a little late, though. Can you come by my place and we'll go from here? She listened. Good. I'll wait for you. Hanging up, she walked into the kitchen, where she slid the longest carving knife from its place in the rack. She went to the front door and pushed back its bolt, which now moved freely. She carried the knife into the living room, took off her bathrobe, and danced the dance of hunting, of the joy of hunting, of the joy of the impending kill. And she sat down cross-legged in the corner. He who kills sat cross-legged in the corner, in the darkness, waiting for the prey to come. The End Well, familiar, man. I mean, it most totally is. Yeah. Okay, let me get a little bit into the back back story. In 1972, after Dark Shadows had went off the air, Dan Curtis was still a big man on TV. He had started to do his classics illustrated series, as I jokingly call them which was two with uh, Jack Palance. One is Dracula. Do you remember what the other one was that he did with Palance? 
Not offhand, no. I, I know Dr. the Dracula Jekyll one. Mr. Sure. Hyde. Okay, yeah. And the third one, which might be out of time, was uh, Frankenstein with Bo Finson as Frankenstein Monster. All three are good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But then he did an anthology movie. Do you remember what that one was called? Well, I think that's the one this story comes from. Correct? Uh, no, it was the first one, okay. Dead of Night. Oh, okay. And the very most successful story from that was a story about this little boy who's summoned back from the dead by his mother. And yeah, variation who wrote that story? What? Yeah, and who wrote that story? Richard Matheson. Well, that would be Richard Matheson, correct? Yeah, and after all the critical acclaim and the rating success Dead of Night did, he decided he wanted to do another anthology of Richard Matheson stories. But he didn't work with, want to work with the three different crews like he did in Dead of Night. So he decided he was going to do an experiment. And what was that experiment? I mean, the experiment oh. itself. Oh, basically you have have uh, the basic same cast for all three stories. Uh, and Karen Black uh, is, is the female uh, star of each of those stories and the protagonist of each of those stories. Yeah. <laughs> and, and originally so three- they used the original story title. But the problem was is that the first story was named after the lead female part. Mm-hmm. And the second story was named after the lead female part. And they had trouble with the third story because that one line you did showed the three titles they worked with. The first right, was, exactly. was, you know, I forget, what was it? He, it was, he I know killed. one was He Shall Be Killed, and the other one was Deadly Hunter. And what was the third one, which was also meant within those two sentences? Well, it's He Who Kills, Deadly Hunter, and it's, of course, the, the name on uh, that they use is Amelia. Yeah, and reviewers have always said they watched the first two stories. And they weren't impressed by him, you know. They really weren't as scary as they thought it would be from Richard Matheson. Mm-hmm. And then Amelia came and just kicked the shit out of him. That's the same feeling I got when I first watched it in the 90s. Well, you know, you know, the thing is to visualize that doll. And, and I, I've got a story before before we end, but... That doll and the design of that doll is iconic. Oh, God, yeah. You know, the dark charcoal wood with that little spear and those teeth go, yeah, 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 yeah. And of course. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, there. You do it better than I do. But it's a wonderful story. And, and Karen Black just freaking just kills it in that one. She's so good. You would be surprised, Carl, how many people are afraid of little motherfuckers hiding 
under the couch and shit and cutting their ankles and feet and stuff like that. Oh, tons. You know, I mean, what's the one? There was the the, the other one with Kim Darby. That was a TV movie. What was the name of that? The Little Creatures in the Furnace. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget what it was, but uh, Del Toro did a remake of it. Right. And which Are was, You Afraid of the Dark or something? Don't right. be afraid of the dark. Yeah. And, and, and that one, you know, it's it's these small little creatures, man. They can be, they can fuck you up. Big time. And you didn't see them through 90% of the movie. All you heard was this very creepy whispers. Yeah, yeah. Don't be afraid of the dark. Right. But yeah. with the Sunni pedestal and, 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 and the way that they did Amelia, it's shown to you right from the beginning when she opens up the box. And he's a creepy motherfucker. And then the, the animatronics they use during the filming and that it just is, is brilliant. And 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 scary as fuck. Seriously. And they added something that wasn't in the short story, which was they described these nasty-ass teeth and claws in the short story, but they didn't use them in, um, in the short story. No, because he used the knife. Yeah, he but in the short anything. story, this guy was a fucking world endeavorer, with or without the fucking knife blade or spear. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in the and, movie, because... People weren't really clarified about that in the short story. And that's more of people's stupidity rather than Masterson making a mistake. The little skull clarified that don't let the fucking necklace fall off. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because and they he- couldn't have her get naked in the... TV movie. God damn the it's a bare bones makeup, but god damn that makeup they made her use in that fucking Well well I, I, I must say uh whenever you see Vicky again, whenever you see Vicky, please ask her to do her version of the uh uh possessed Karen Black and the Sunni fetish doll because she's really good at it. Now, I have one other thing to say here, so so let me say it. So, this Sunni fetish doll is so iconic that I worked in, in music retail, and there was a company called Ernie Ball, and they make guitar strings. And they're, you know, they're old hippies. You know, they smoke dope and so on and so forth, and they're very crazy. But they actually, we would get swag from this company, and I have in my possession a advertising T-shirt of theirs with the Zuni fetish doll playing guitar with Ernie Ball Strig. And under the Zuni fetish doll, it says, courtesy of Dan Curtis Enterprises. So it is definitely the Zuni fetish doll, and I am proud of that shirt. And they actually did a sequel, which wasn't as good, but it was still watchable because it was a fucking Zuni fetish doll. 
<laughs> exactly. It's a Zuni fetish doll. How can you not love him? Oh, and since it is in continuity, yes, she does end up killing her mother. Yes. Which the bitch deserved, but let's not get into that. <laughs> and it's that a, just goes to the movie version. They had, I don't know who did her voice, her mother's voice, but they made her out to be a real bitch. Yeah. But, yeah, Dan Curtis just, Dan Curtis and Matherson together was just damn. Yeah, and, and it's and, one of the iconic TV movies from that era. Uh, you ask anyone, they'll, they'll say Trilogy of Terror. Talk and about that's horror movies. one thing that really kills me about the DVD era. The lack of representation of 70s TV horror movies. Yeah. You know, there was a post on, on one of my groups, not ISF, but another one I, I visit, talking about that. And I said, you know, which ones are forgotten? And like, there's so many good ones from that era. Uh, a Cold Night's Death is one of my favorites. Harvest, Harvest Home. Uh, that oh, one with Stacy Keach and the Psycho Kids where they uh, kidnap them and force them to be the parents. Yep. That bizarre Christmas movie where a family gets together and starts arguing until a psychopath just shows up out of the fucking blue and starts killing everybody. Yep. Uh, Wes Craven's Chiller. Mm-hmm. Of That's course, good stuff. my all-time favorite. Okay, which is? Harvest Home. Or the dark oh, yeah. secret of Harvest Home. It's on YouTube in a shitty version, but even if it's shitty, go watch it. It'll scare the fuck out of you. <laughs> Betty Davidson's yes, not been scarier, has she? Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that at all. You know, whatever happened to Baby Jane? And then if yeah. you, you ask Larry Cohen before he died, <laughs> it would be the Wicked Smith Stepmother. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. Yeah. There's just so mm-hmm. many. Uh, oh, And even though it got on DVD, I would not put Devil Dog, Hound of Hell, even though it's a good movie. Above all the shit that didn't get on there. Yep. I mean, wouldn't you rather have uh, uh, the Killer Bees, the one with uh, Christopher Lee and Roddy McDowell negotiating with fucking bees not to kill the world? Yep. I'm being literal, people. They get at the end of the movie is that they have a conference. Between fucking Christopher Lee, Roddy McDowell, and the goddamn bees. And yes, they do. Don't fuck with us. We don't fuck with you. Exactly. Or Tarantula's the Deadly Cargo. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. But, yeah, there's just so many, and they're on YouTube, but, yeah, there's just so many good ones that didn't even get a whiff of even being on PD sets. 
But Trilogy of Terror, well, Amelia is so famous that it's one of the more expensive VHSs is that Lazuni Fetish Doll got its own fucking VHS. Did you know that, Carl? Oh, yeah, I did know that. We talked about that previously. Yeah, they cut out the other two stories in Trilogy of Terror and put out the Zuni Fetish Doll. It was called Amelia, a.k.a. Prey, a.k.a. The Scary One. <laughs> yeah, from Trilogy of Terror. <laughs> and I did like, very weak like, the other two stories from Trilogy of Terror. They just didn't have that grab you by the throat, slam you against the table, and just beat the shit out of your brains. No, they didn't. They didn't. Not, not by a long shot. And thank you for being on call. And what you've listened to the story that I'm going to be playing next, The Autopsy. Do you think that's yeah. a good companion with Prey? Yes, I do. Very, very much so. And that was Very much so. You guys all enjoy it. Yeah, I ain't even going to say what it's about. All I got to say is an old man shows up and doesn't do an autopsy over a mine accident. After that, you just got to listen to the story. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. No, no doubt about it. And yours is with good stuff, too, as usual. Well, thank well, anyway, you very much. happy Halloween for all of us. And starting in November, oh, we got our Thanksgiving episode already ready. I've already decided the punishment. I mean, the gloriousness that uh, Carl is going to go. Uh oh. Because he told Uh-oh. me. Because he told me I don't want to see that piece of shit movie, The Irishman. I went okay. We'll watch. Another mob movie that's came out in the last two years. Okay. So, for this Thanksgiving, for our annual turkey episode, we're going to be doing John Travolta in Gotti. you got to be kidding me. Oh, I've seen it twice. It's worse than you think. Oh, I know, I know. We've you talked about this. Fuck you, Leo I'm... Ross. What the fuck? <laughs> Leo, what were you thinking? Yeah. But we'll explain that when we do the show. And coming up soon, I don't know when, is going to be a interview with the makers of uh, Prey. And one of them, it, it was a shot by the guy who directed Tennessee Gothic. God bless his ass for making a corn porn movie today. Bethel Buckaloo and Russ, well, Bethel Buckaloo will be proud. Russ Meyer will be saying, man, why did the girl in your movie have bigger titties? But I can assure you that Bethel Buckaloo, uh, David Freeman and the rest of those corn porn guys are looking down upon him from heaven and smiling and nodding in agreement. Yeah, good Lord. And the other one is the director, Jugface, which is one of those I'm surprised Carl hasn't seen because 
if there's any two kinds of horror that gives Carl Hart on, one is slow, objective, obtuse horror films like uh, The Lighthouse and The Witch, and the second is ghost stories without ghosts. And now for the second part of our show, which is a two-hour reading of the autopsy. It is great, but watch out. This is a long one, but God damn, is it worth it. So enjoy it. Happy Halloween, everyone. And thank you again for listening to... Cult Side Radio, and we'll see you in Louisville tomorrow night for, well, all I know is the dead's out back surfing, and, and we can't get them to stop. So peace, love, and see you on Halloween. The Autopsy Dr. Winter stepped out of the tiny Greyhound station and into the midnight street that smelled of pines. The station's window showed the only light, save for a luminous clock face several doors down, and a little neon beer logo two blocks farther on. He could hear a river. It ran deep in a gorge west of town, but the town was only a few streets wide and a mile or so long, and the current's blurred roar was distinct, like the noise of a ghost river running between the banks of dark shop windows. When he had walked a short distance, Dr. Winters set his suitcase down, pocketed his hands and looked at the stars, thick as cobblestones in the black gulf. "'A mountain hamlet, a mining town,' he said. "'Stars, no moon. We are in Bailey.' He was talking to his cancer. It was in his stomach. Since learning of it, he had developed this habit of wry communication with it. He meant to show courtesy to this uninvited guest, death. It would not find him churlish, for that would make its victory absolute. Except, of course, that its victory would be absolute, with or without his ironies. He picked up his suitcase and walked on. The starlight made faint mirrors of the window's blackness and showed him the man who passed. Lizard lean, white-haired, at fifty-seven, a man travelling on death's business, carrying his own death in him, and even bearing death's wardrobe in his suitcase. For this was filled, aside from his medical kit and some scant necessities, with mortuary bags. The sheriff had told him on the phone of the improvisations that presently enveloped the corpses, and so the doctor had packed these, laying them in his case with bitter amusement, checking the last one's breath against his chest before the mirror, as a woman will gauge a dress before donning it, and telling his cancer, Oh, yes, that's plenty roomy enough for both of us. The case was heavy and he stopped frequently to rest and scan the sky. What a night's work to do, probing pungent, soulless filth, 
eyes earthward, beneath such a ceiling of stars. It had taken five days to dig the ten men out. The autumnal equinox had passed, but the weather here had been uniformly hot, and warmer still, no doubt, so deep in the earth. He entered the courthouse by a side door. His heels knocked on the linoleum corridor. A door at the end of it, on which was lettered Nate Craven, County Sheriff, opened well before he reached it, and his friend stepped out to meet him. "'Damn it, Carl. You're still so thin they could use you for a whip. Give me that. You're in too good a shape already. You don't need the exercise.' The case hung weightless from the sheriff's hand, imparting no tilt at all to his bull shoulders. Despite his implied self-derogation, he was only moderately paunched for a man his age and size. He had a rough-hewn face, and the bulk of brow, nose, and jaw made his greenish eyes look small until one engaged them and felt the snap and penetration of their intelligence. In the office he half-filled two cups from a coffee-urn and topped both off with bourbon from a bottle in his desk. When they had finished these, they had finished trading news of mutual friends. The sheriff mixed another round and sipped from his, in a silence clearly prefatory to the work at hand. "'They talk about rough justice,' he said. "'I've sure seen it now. One of those patients of yours that you'll be working on, he was a killer. Christ, killer doesn't half say it. A killer's the least of what he was. The blast killing him, that was the justice part.' Those other nine, they were the rough. And it just galls the hell out of me, Carl. If that kiss-ass boss of yours has his way, the rough won't even stop with their being dead. There won't even be any compensation for their survivors. Tell me, has he broke his back yet? I mean, touching his toes for Fordham Mutual. You refer, I take it, to the estimable Coroner Waddleton of Fordham County. Dr. Winters paused to sip his drink. With a delicate flaring of his nostrils he communicated all the disgust, contempt, and amusement he had felt in his four years as pathologist in Waddleton's office. The sheriff laughed. Clear pictures seldom emerge from anything the coroner says, the doctor continued. He took your name in vain, vigorously and repeatedly. These expressions formed his opening remarks— he then developed the theme of our office's strict responsibility to the letter of the law, and of the workman's compensation law in particular. Death benefits accrue only to the dependents of descendants, whose deaths arise out of the course of their employment, not merely in the course of it. Victims of a maniacal assault, though they die on the job, are by no means necessarily compensable under the law. We then contemplated the tragic injustice of an insurance company, any insurance company, having to pay benefits to unentitled persons solely through the laxity and incompetence of investigating officers. Your name came up again, and Coroner Waddleton subjected it to further abuse. Fordham Mutual, campaign contributor or not, is certainly a major insurance company, and is therefore entitled to the same fair treatment that all such companies deserve. Craven uttered a bark of wrathful mirth, and spat expertly into his waste-basket. Ah, the impartial public servant! 
What seven widows and sixteen dependent children next to Fordham Mutual? He drained his cup and sighed. I'll tell you what, Carl. We've been five days digging those men out, and the last two days sifting half that mountain for explosive traces, with those insurance investigators hanging on our elbows, and the most they could say was that there was strong presumptive evidence of a bomb. Well, I don't budge for that because I don't have to. Waddleton can shove his extraordinary circumstances. If you don't find anything in those bodies, then that's all the autopsy there is to it, and they get buried right here where their families want them. The doctor was smiling at his friend. He finished his cup and spoke with his previous wry detachment, as if the sheriff had not interrupted his narrative. The Honourable Coroner then spoke with remarkable volubility on the subject of autopsy consent forms and the malicious subversion of private citizens by vested officers of the law. He had, as it happened, a sheaf of such forms on his desk, all signed, all with a rider clause typed in above the signatures. A cogent paragraph. It had, among its other qualities, the property of turning the coroner's face purple when he read it aloud. He read it aloud to me three times. It appeared that the survivor's consent was contingent on two conditions. That the autopsy be performed in loco mortis, that is to say in Bailey, and that only if the coroner's pathologist found concrete evidence of homicide should the decedents be subject either to removal from Bailey or to further necropsy. It was well written. I remember wonderingly who wrote it. The sheriff nodded musingly. He took Dr. Winter's empty cup, set it by his own, filled both two-thirds with bourbon, and added a splash of coffee to the doctor's. The two friends exchanged a level stare, rather like poker players in the clinch. The sheriff regarded his cup, sipped from it. In loco mortis. What all does that mean exactly? In the place of death. Oh, freshen that up for you. I've just started it, thank you. Both men laughed, paused, and laughed again. Some might have said immoderately. He all but told me that I had to find something to compel a second autopsy, the doctor said at length. He would have sold his soul, or taken out a second mortgage on it, for a mobile X-ray unit. He's right, of course. If those bodies have trapped any bomb fragments, that would be the surest and quickest way of finding them. It still amazes me that your Dr. Parsons could let his X-ray go unfixed for so long. He sets bones, stitches wounds, writes prescriptions, and sends anything tricky down the mountain. Just barely manages that. Drunks don't get much done. He's gotten that bad. He hangs on and no more. Waddleton was right there, not deputizing him pathologist. I doubt he could find a cannonball in a dead rat. I wouldn't say it where it could hurt him, as long as he's still managing, but everyone here knows it. His patients sort of look after him half the time. But Waddleton would have sent you, no matter who was here. Nothing but his best for party contributors like Fordham Mutual. The doctor looked at his hands and shrugged. So, there's a killer in the batch. Was there a bomb? Slowly the sheriff planted his elbows on the desk and pressed his hands against his temples, as if the question had raised a turbulence of memories. For the first time the doctor, 
half hearkening throughout to the never quite muted stirrings of the death within him, saw his friend's exhaustion, the tremor of his hand, the bruised look under the eyes. Well, I've told you what we have. I guess you'll end up assuming what I do about it. But I think assuming is as far as any of us will get with this one. It's one of those nightmare specials, Carl. The ones no one ever does get to the bottom of. All right, then. About two months ago we had a man disappear. Ronald Hanley. Mine worker, rock-steady family man. He didn't come home one night and we never found a trace of him. Okay, that happens sometimes. About a week later, the lady that ran the laundromat, Sharon Starker, she disappeared. No trace. We got edgy then. I made an announcement on the local radio about a possible weirdo at large, spelled out special precautions everybody should take. We put both our squad cars on the night beat, and by day we set to work knocking on every door in town collecting alibis for the two times of disappearance. No good. Maybe you're fooled by this uniform and think I'm a law officer, protector of the people and all that. A natural mistake. A lot of people were fooled. In less than seven weeks, six people vanished just like that. Me and my deputies might as well have stayed in bed round the clock for all the good we did. The sheriff drained his cup. Anyway, at last we got lucky. Don't get me wrong now. We didn't go all hog-wild and actually prevent a crime or anything, but we did find a body. Except it wasn't the body of any of the seven people that had disappeared. We'd taken to combing the woods nearest town, with temporary deputies from the miners to help. Well, one of those boys was out there with us last week. It was hot, like it's been for a while now. And it was real quiet. He heard this buzzing noise and looked around for it, and he saw a bee swarm up in the crotch of a tree. Except he was smart enough to know that's not usual around here. Beehives. So it wasn't bees. It was blue-bottle flies. A goddamned big cloud of them, all over a bundle that was wrapped in a tarp. The sheriff studied his knuckles. He had, in his eventful life, occasionally met men literate enough to understand his last name, and rash enough to be openly amused by it. And the knuckles, scarred knobs, were eloquent of his reactions. He looked back into his old friend's eyes. We got that thing down and unwrapped it. Billy Lee Davis, one of my deputies. He was in Vietnam, being near some bad, bad things, and held on. Billy Lee blew his lunch all over the ground when we unwrapped that thing. It was a man. Some of a man. We knew he'd stood six too because all the bones were there, and he'd probably weighed between two fifteen and two twenty-five, but he folded up no bigger than a big-sized laundry package. Still had his face, both his shoulders, and the left arm, but all the rest was clean. It wasn't animal work. It was knife work. All the edges neat as butcher cuts. Except butchered meat. Even when you drain it all you can, will bleed a good deal afterwards. And there wasn't one goddamned drop of blood on the top, nor in that meat. It was just as pale as fish meat. Deep in his body's centre, the doctor's cancer touched him. Not a ravening attack. 
it sank one fang of pain, questioningly, into new untasted flesh, probing the scope for its appetite there. He disguised his tremor with a shake of the head. A cash, then? The sheriff nodded. Like you might keep a pot roast in the icebox for making lunches. I took some pictures of his face, then we put him back and erased our traces. Two of the miners I deputized did a lot of hunting, were wood smart, so I left them on the first watch. We worked our positions and cover for them, and drove back. We got right on tracing him, sent out descriptions to every town within a hundred miles. He was no one I'd ever seen in Bailey, nor anyone else either. It began to look like after we'd combed the town all day with the photos. Then, out of the blue, Billy Lee Davis smacks himself on the forehead and says, Sheriff, I seen this man somewhere in town, and not long ago. He'd been shook all day since throwing up, and then all of a sudden he just snapped too. Was dead sure, except he couldn't remember where or when. We went over and over it, and he tried and tried. It got to where I wanted to grab him by the ankles and hang him upside down and shake him till it dropped out of him. But it was no damn use. Just after dark we went back to that tree. We'd worked out a place to hide the cars and route to it through the woods. When we were close, we walkie-talkied the men we'd left for an all-clear to come up. No answer at all. And when we got there, all that was left of our trap was the tree. No body, no top, no special assistant deputies. Nothing. This time Dr. Winters poured the coffee and bourbon. <coughs> Too much coffee, the sheriff muttered, but drank anyway. Part of me wanted to chew nails and break necks, and part of me was scared shitless. When we got back, I got on the radio station again and made an emergency broadcast and then had the man at the station rebroadcast it every hour. Told everyone to do everything in groups of three, to stay together at night in threes at least, to go out little as possible, keep armed and keep checking upon each other. It had such a damn full sun to it, but just pairing up was no protection if half of one of those pairs was the killer. I sent our corpse's picture out statewide. I deputized more men and put them on the streets to beef up the night patrol. It was the next morning that things broke. The sheriff of Rakehell called. He's over in the next county. He said our corpse looked a lot like a man named Abel Doherty, a mill hand with Con Wood over there. I left Billy Lee in charge and drove right out. This Doherty had a crippled older sister he always checked back to by phone whenever he left town for long. A habit no one knew about probably embarrassed him. Sheriff Peck there only found out about it when the woman called him, said her brother had been four days gone for vacation and not rung her once. He'd hardly had her report for an hour when he got the picture I sent out and recognised it. And I hadn't been in his office more than ten minutes when Billy Lee called me there. He'd remembered. When he'd seen Doherty was the Sunday night three days before we found him. Where he'd seen him was the trucker's tavern outside the north end of town. The man had made a stir by being jolly drunk and latching on to a miner who was drinking there. Man named Joe Allen, who'd started at the mine about two months back. 
Doherty kept telling him that he wasn't Joe Allen, but Doherty's old buddy named Sykes that had worked with him at Conwood for a coon's age. And what the hell kind of joke was this? Come have a beer, old buddy, and tell me why you took off so sudden. And what the hell you been doing with yourself? Allen took it laughing. Doherty'd clap him on the shoulder. Allen would clap him right back and make every kind of joke about it, say, Give this man another beer. I'm standing in for a long-lost friend of his. Doherty was so big and loud and stubborn, Billy Lee was worried about a fight starting, and he wasn't the only one worried. But this Joe Allen was a natural good old boy. Handled it perfect. We checked him out weeks back along with everyone else, and he was real popular with the other miners. Finally, Doherty swore he was going to take him on to another bar to help celebrate the vacation Doherty was starting out on. Joe Allen got up grinning, said, God damn it, he couldn't accommodate Doherty by being this fellow Sykes, but he could sure as hell have a glass with any serious drinking man that was treating. He went out with him, gave everyone a wink as he left, to the general satisfaction of the audience. Craven paused. Dr. Winters met his eyes and knew his thought. Two images. The jolly wink that roused the room to laughter, and the thing in the top, a boil with bright blue flies. It was plain enough for me, the sheriff said. I told Billy Lee to search Allen's room at the Skettles boarding house and then go straight to the mine and take him. We could find polished things once we had him. Since I was already in Wake Hell... I saw to some of the loose ends before I started back. I went with Sheriff Peck down to Conwood, and we found a picture of Eddie Sykes in the personnel files. I'd seen Joe Allen often enough, and it was his picture in that file. We found out Sykes had lived alone, was an on-again, off-again worker, private in his comings and goings, and hadn't been around for a while. But one of the Sawyers there could be pretty sure of when Sykes left Rakehell, because he'd gone to Sykes's cabin the morning after a big meteor shower they'd had out there about nine weeks back, since some thought the shower might have reached the ground, and not far from Sykes's side of the mountain. He wasn't in that morning, and the Sawyer hadn't seen him since. After all those weeks, it was sewed up just like that. Within another hour, I was almost back in Bailey, had the pedal to the metal and was barely three miles out of town, when it all blew to shit. I heard it blow. I was that close to collaring him. I tell you, Carl, I felt like a bullet. I was going to rip right through this Sykes, this goddamn cannibal monster. We had to reconstruct what happened. Billy Lee got impatient and went after him alone, but luckily he radioed Travis, my other deputy, first. Travis was on the mountain dragnetting around that tree for clues, but he happened to be near his car when Billy Lee called him. He said he'd just been through Alan's room, and he had got something really odd. It was a sphere, half again big as a basketball, heavy, made of something that wasn't metal or glass, but was a little like both. He could half see into it, and it looked to be full of some kind of circuitry and components. He hadn't found anything else unusual. He was going to take this thing along with him and go after Alan now. He told Travis to get up to the mine for backup. He'd be there first, and should already have Alan by the time Travis arrived. Tierney, the shift's boss up there, had an assistant that told us the rest. 
Billy Lee parked behind the offices where the men in the yard wouldn't see the car. He went upstairs to arrange the arrest with Tierney. They got half a dozen men together. Just as they came out of the building, they saw Alan take off running from the squad car. He had the sphere under his arm. The whole compound's fenced in, and Tierney had already phoned to have all the gates shut. Alan zigged and zagged some, but caught on quick to the trap. The sphere slowed him, but he still had a good lead. He hesitated a minute and then ran straight for the mine shaft. A cage was just going down with a crew, and he risked every bone in him jumping down after it, but he got safe on top. By the time they got to the switches, the cage was down to the second level, and Alan and the crew had got out. Tierney got it back up. Billy Lee ordered the rest back to get weapons and follow, and him and Tierney rode the cage right back down. And about two minutes later, half the goddamned mine blew up. The sheriff stopped as if cut off, his lips parted to say more, his eyes registering, for perhaps the hundredth time, his amazement that there was no more. That the weeks of death and mystification ended here, with this split-second recapitulation. More death, more answerless dark, sealing all. Nate. What? Wrap it up and go to bed. I don't need your help. You're dead on your feet. I'm not on my feet, and I'm coming along. Give me a picture of the victim's position relative to the blast. I'm going to work, and you're going to bed. The sheriff shook his head absently. They're mining in shrinkage stopes. The adits, levels, branch off lateral from the vertical shaft. From one level they hollow out overhand up to the one above. Scoop out big chambers and let most of the broken rock stay inside so they can stand on the heaps to cut the ceiling higher. They leave sections of support wall between stopes, and those men were buried several stopes in from the shaft. The cave-in killed them. The mountain just folded them up in their own hill of tailings. No kind of fragments reached them, I'm dead sure. The only ones they found were of some standard charges that the main blast set off, and those didn't even get close. The big one blew out where the adit joined the shaft, right where, and right when, Billy Lee and Tierney got out of the cage. And there is nothing left there, Carl. No sphere, no cage, no Tierney, no Billy Lee Davis. Just rock blown as fine as flour. Dr. Winters nodded and after a moment stood up. Come on, Nate. I've got to get started. I'll be lucky to have even a few of them done before morning. Drop me off and go to sleep, till then at least. You'll still be there to witness most of the work. The sheriff rose, took up the doctor's suitcase, and led him out of the office without a word. Concession in his silence. The patrol car was behind the building. The doctor saw a crueler beauty in the stars than he had an hour before. They got in, and Craven swung them out onto the empty street. The doctor opened the window and hearkened, but the motor's surge drowned out the river sound. Before the thrust of their headlights, Ranks of old-fashioned parking meters sprouted shadows tall across the sidewalks, shadows that shrunk and were cut down by the light's passage. The sheriff said, All those extra dead. For nothing. 
not even to feed him. If it was a bomb and he made it, he'd know how powerful it was. He wouldn't try some stupid escape stunt with it. And how did he even know that globe was there? We worked it out that Alan was just ending a shift, but he wasn't even up out of the ground before Billy Lead parked out of sight from the shaft. Let it rest, Nate. I want to hear more, but after you've slept. I know you. All the photos will be there, and the report complete, all the evidence neatly boxed and carefully described. When I've looked things over, I'll know exactly how to proceed by myself. Bailey had neither hospital nor morgue, and the bodies were in a defunct ice plant on the edge of town. A generator had been brought down from the mine, lighting, improvised, and the refrigeration system reactivated. Dr. Parsons' office, and the tiny examining room that served the sheriff's station in place of a morgue, had furnished this makeshift with all the equipment that Dr. Winters would need beyond what he carried with him. A quarter mile outside the main body of the town, they drew up to it. Tree-flanked, unneighboured by any other structure, it was a double building. The smaller half, the office was illuminated. The bodies would be in the big windowless refrigerator segment. Craven pulled up beside a second squad car, parked near the office door. A short, rake-thin man wearing a large white Stetson got out of the car and came over. Craven rolled down his window. Trav, this here's Dr. Winters. Lo, Nate, Dr. Winters. Everything's ship-shape inside. Felt more comfortable out here. Last of those two news hands left two hours ago. They sure do hang on. You take off now, Trav. Get some sleep and be back at sun-up. What temperature we getting? The pale Stetson, far clearer in the starlight than the shadow face beneath it, wagged dubiously. Thirty-six. She won't get lower. Some kind of leak. That should be cold enough, the doctor said. Travis drove off, and the sheriff unlocked the padlock on the office door. Waiting behind him, Dr. Winters heard the river again. A cold balm, a whisper of freedom. And overlying this, the stutter and soft snarl of the generator behind the building. A gnawing, remorseless sound that somehow fed the obscure anguish that the other soothed. They went in. The preparations had been thoughtful and complete. You can wheel them out of the fridge on this. And do the examining in here, the sheriff said, indicating a table and a gurney. You should find all the gear you need on this big table here, and you can write up your reports on that desk. The phone's not hooked up. There's a payphone at the gas station, if you have to call me. The doctor nodded, checking over the material on the larger table. Scalpels, post-mortem and cartilage knives, intestine scissors, rib shears, forceps, probes, mallets and chisels, a blade saw and electric bone saw, scale, jars for specimens, needles and suture, sterilizer, gloves. Beside this array were a few boxes and envelopes with descriptive sheets attached, containing the photographs and such evidentiary objects as had been found associated with the bodies. "'Excellent,' he muttered. "'The overhead light's fluorescent. Full spectrum, or whatever they call it. Better for colours.' 
There's a pint of decent bourbon in that top desk drawer. Ready to look at em? Yes. The sheriff unbarred and slid back the big metal door to the refrigeration chamber. I see tainted air boiled out of the doorway. The light within was dimmer than that provided in the office, a yellow gloom wherein ten oblong heaps lay on trestles. The two stood silent for a time. Their stillness a kind of unpremeditated homage paid the eternal mystery at its threshold. As if the cold room were in fact a shrine, the doctor found a peculiar awe in the row of veiled forms. The awful unison of their dying, the titan's grave that had been made for them, conferred on them a stern authority, death's chosen ones. His stomach hurt, and he found he had his hand pressed to his abdomen. He glanced at Craven, and was relieved to see that his friend, staring wearily at the bodies, had missed the gesture. Nate, help me uncover them. Starting at opposite ends of the row, they stripped the tarps off and piled them in a corner. Both were brusque now, not pausing over the revelation of the swelled, pulpy faces, most three-lipped with the gaseous burgeoning of their tongues, and the fat, livid hands sprouting from the filthy sleeves. But at one of the bodies, Craven stopped. The doctor saw him look, and his mouth twist. Then he flung the tarp on the heap and moved to the next trestle. When they came out, Dr. Winters took the bottle and glasses Craven had put in the desk, and they had a drink together. The sheriff made as if he would speak, but shook his head and sighed. I will get some sleep, Carl. I'm getting crazy thoughts with this thing. The doctor wanted to ask those thoughts. Instead, he laid a hand on his friend's shoulder. Go home, Sheriff Craven. Take off the badge and lie down. The dead won't run off on you. We'll all still be here in the morning. When the sound of the patrol car faded, the doctor stood listening to the generator's growl and the silence of the dead, resurgent now. Both the sound and the silence seemed to mock him. The after-echo of his last words made him uneasy. He said to his cancer, What about it, dear colleague? We will still be here tomorrow, all of us. He smiled, but felt an odd discomfort, as if he had ventured a jest in company and roused a hostile silence. He went to the refrigerator door, rolled it back, and viewed the corpses in their ordered rank, with their strange tribunal air. "'What, sirs?' he murmured. "'Do you judge me?' "'Just who is to examine whom to-night, if I may ask?' He went back into the office, where his first step was to examine the photographs made by the sheriff, in order to see how the dead had lain at their uncovering. The earth had seized them with terrible suddenness. Some crouched, some partly stood, Others sprawled in crazy, free-fall postures. Each successive photo showed more of the jumble as the shovels continued, their work between shots. The doctor studied them closely, noting the identifications inked on the bodies as they came completely into view. One man, Roger Willett, had died some yards from the main cluster. It appeared he had just straggled into the stope from the adit at the moment of the explosion. 
he should thus have received, more directly than any of the others, the shock-waves of the blast. If bomb-fragments were to be found in any of the corpses, Mr. Willets seemed likeliest to contain them. Dr. Winters pulled on a pair of surgical gloves. Willett lay at one end of the line of trestles. He wore a thermal shirt and overalls that were strikingly new beneath the filth of burial. Their tough fabrics jarred with the fabric of his flesh, blue, swollen, seeming easily torn or burst like ripe fruit. In life, Willett had grease-combed his hair. Now it was a sculpture of dust, spikes and walls, shaped by the head's last grindings against the mountain that clenched it. Rigor had come and gone. Willett rolled laxly onto the gurney. As the doctor wheeled him past the others, he felt a slight self-consciousness. The sense of some judgment flowing from the dead assembly, unlike most such vagrant fantasies, had an odd tenacity in him. This stubborn unease began to irritate him with himself, and he moved more briskly. He put Willet on the examining table and cut the clothes off him with shears, storing the pieces in an evidence box. The overalls were soiled with agonal waste expulsions. The doctor stared a moment with unwilling pity at his naked subject. "'You won't ride down to Fordham in any case,' he said to the corpse. "'Not unless I find something pretty damned obvious.' He pulled his gloves tighter and arranged his implements. Waddleton had said more to him than he had reported to the sheriff. The doctor was to find, and forcefully to record, that he had found strong indications, absolutely requiring the decedent's removal to Fordham for X-ray and an exhaustive second post-mortem. The doctor's continued employment with the coroner's office depended entirely on his compliance in this. He had received this stipulation with a silence Waddleton had not thought it necessary to break. His present resolution was all but made at that moment. Let the obvious be taken as such. If the others showed as plainly as Willett did the external signs of death by asphyxiation, they would receive no more than a thorough external exam. Willett he would examine internally as well, merely to establish in depth, for this one, what should appear obvious in all. Otherwise, only when the external exam revealed a clearly anomalous feature, and clear and suggestive it must be, would he look deeper. He rinsed the caked hair in a basin, poured the sediment into a flask and labelled it. Starting with the scalp, he began a minute scrutiny of the body's surfaces, recording his observations as he went. The characteristic signs of asphyxial death were evident, despite the complicating effects of autolysis and putrefaction. The eyeball's bulge and the tongue's protrusion were, by now, as much due to gas pressure as to the mode of death, but the latter organ was clamped between locked teeth, leaving little doubt as to that mode. The coloration of degenerative change, a greenish-yellow tint, a darkening and mapping out of superficial veins, was marked, but not sufficient to obscure the blue of cyanosis on the face and neck nor the pinpoint hemorrhages, freckling neck, chest and shoulders. From the mouth and nose the doctor scraped matter he was confident was the blood-tinged mucus typically ejected in the airless agony. He began to find a kind of comedy in his work. 
what a buffoon death made of a man, a blue, pop-eyed, three-lipped thing, and there was himself, his curious, solicitous intimacy with this clownish carrion. Excuse me, Mr. Willett, while I probe this laceration. What do you feel when I do this? Nothing? Nothing at all? Fine. Now what about these nails? Split them clawing at the earth, did you? Yes. A nice blood blister under this thumbnail, I see. Got it on the job a few days before your accident, no doubt. Remarkable calluses here. Still quite tough. The doctor looked for an unanalytic moment at the hands. Puffed, dark paws. Gestulous, having renounced all touch and grasp. He felt the wastage of the man concentrated in the hands, the painful futility of the body's fine articulation when it is seen in death. This pregnancy he had long learned not to acknowledge when he worked. But now he let it move him a little. This Roger Willett, plodding to his work one afternoon, had suddenly been scrapped, crushed to a non-functional heap of perishable materials. It simply happened that his life had chanced to move too close to the passage of a more powerful life, one of those inexorable and hungry lives that leave human wreckage, known or undiscovered, in their wakes. Bad luck, Mr. Willett. Naturally, we feel very sorry about this. But this Joe Allen, your co-worker, apparently he was some sort of cannibal. It's complicated. We don't understand it all. But the fact is, we have to dismantle you now to a certain extent. There's really no hope of your using these parts of yourself again, I'm afraid. Ready now? The doctor proceeded to the internal exam with a vague eagerness for Willett's fragmentation, for the disarticulation of that sadness in his natural form. He grasped Willett by the jaw and took up the post-mortem knife. He sunk its point beneath the chin and began the long, gently sawing incision that opened Willett from throat to groin. In the painstaking separation of the body's laminae, Dr. Winters found absorption and pleasure. And yet, throughout he felt, marginal but insistent, the movement of a stream of irrelevant images. These were of the building that contained him, and of the night containing it. As from outside he saw the plant, bleached planks, iron roofing, and the trees crowding it, all in starlight, a ghost-town image. And he saw the refrigerator vault beyond the wall, as from within, feeling the stillness of murdered men in a cold yellow light. And at length a question formed itself, darting in and out of the weave of his concentration as the images did. Why did he still feel, like some stir of the air, that sense of mute vigilance surrounding his action, furtively touching his nerves with its inquiry as he worked. He shrugged, overtly angry now. Who else was attending but death? Wasn't he death's hireling, and this death's place? Then let the master look on. Peeling back Willett's cover of hemorrhage-stippled skin, Dr. Winters read the corpse with an increasing dispassion, a mortuary text. He confined his inspection to the lungs and mediastinum, and found there unequivocal testimony to Willett's asphyxial death. The pleurae of the lungs exhibited the expected ecchymoses, 
bruised spots in the glassy enveloping membrane. Beneath the polyhedral surface lobules of the lungs themselves were bubbled and blistered. The expected interstitial emphysema. The lungs on section were intensely and bloodily congested. The left half of the heart he found contracted and empty, while the right was over-distended and engorged with dark blood, as were all the large veins of the upper mediastinum. It was a classic picture of death by suffocation, and at length the doctor, with needle and suture, closed up the text again. He returned the corpse to the gurney and draped one of his mortuary bags over it in the manner of a shroud. When he had help in the morning, he would weigh the bodies on a platform scale the office contained, and afterward bag them properly. He came to the refrigerator door and hesitated. He stared at the door, not moving, not understanding why. Run! Get out! Now! The thought was his own, but it came to him so urgently he turned around as if someone behind him had spoken. Across the room a thin man in smock and gloves, his eyes shadowed, glared at the doctor from the black windows. Behind the man was a shrouded cart, behind that a wide metal door. Quietly, wonderingly, the doctor asked, Run from what? The eyeless man in the glass was still half-crouched, afraid. Then, a moment later, the man straightened, threw back his head, and laughed. The doctor walked to the desk and sat down shoulder to shoulder with him. He pulled out the bottle, and they had a drink together, regarding each other with identical bemused smiles. Then the doctor said, Let me pour you another. You need it, old fellow. It makes a man himself again. Nevertheless, his re-entry of the vault was difficult, toilsome, each step seeming to require a new summoning of the will to move. In the freezing half-light, all movement felt like defiance. His body lagged behind his craving to be quick, to be done with this molestation of the gathered dead. He returned Willet to his pallet and took his neighbour. The name on the tag wired to his boot was Ed Moses. Dr. Winters wheeled him back to the office and closed the big door behind him. With Moses his work gained momentum. He expected to perform no further internal necropsies. He thought of his employer, rejoicing now in his seeming submission to Waddleton's ultimatum. The impact would be dire. He pictured the coroner in shock, a sheaf of pathologists' reports in one hand, and smiled. Waddleton could probably make a plausible case for incomplete examination. Still, a pathologist's discretionary powers were not well defined. Many good ones would approve the adequacy of the doctor's method, given his working conditions. The inevitable litigation with a coalition of compensation claimants would be strenuous and protracted. Win or lose, Waddleton's venal devotion to the insurance company's interest would be abundantly displayed. Furthermore, immediately on his dismissal, the doctor would formally disclose his occult cause to the press. A libel action would ensue that he would have as little cause to fear as he had to fear his firing. Both his savings and the lawsuit would long outlast his life. 
Externally, Ed Moses exhibited a condition as typically asphyxial as Willits had been, with no slightest mark of fragment entry. The doctor finished his report and returned Moses to the vault, his movements brisk and precise. His unease was all but gone. That queasy stirring of the air, had he really felt it? It had been, perhaps, some new reverberation of the death at work in him, a psychic shudder of response to the cancer's stealthy probing for his life. He brought out the body next to Moses in the line. Walter Lou Jackson was big, six feet two inches from heel to crown, and would surely weigh out at more than two hundred pounds. He had writhed mightily against his million-ton coffin with an agonal strength that had torn his face and hands. Death had mauled him like a lion. The doctor set to work. His hands were fully themselves now, fleet, exact, intricately testing the corpse's character, as other fingers might explore a keyboard for its latent melodies. And the doctor watched them with an old pleasure, one of the few that had never failed him, his mind at one remove from their busy intelligence. All the hard deaths, a world full of them, time without end, lives wrenched kicking from their snug meat frames. Walter Lou Jackson had died very hard. Joe Allen brought this on you, Mr. Jackson. We think it was part of his attempt to escape the law. But what a botched flight! The unreason of it, more than baffling, was eerie in its colossal futility. Beyond question, Alan had been cunning. A ghoul with a psychopath's social finesse. A good old boy who could make a tavern full of men laugh with delight while he cut his victim from their midst, making them applaud his exit with the prey, who stepped jovially into the darkness with murder at his side, clapping him on the shoulder. Intelligent, certainly, with a strange technical sophistication as well, suggested by the sphere. Then what of the lunacy yet more strongly suggested by the same object? In the sphere was concentrated all the lethal mystery of Bailey's long nightmare. Why the explosion? Its location implied an ambush for Alan's pursuers, a purposeful detonation. Had he aimed at a limited cave-in from which he schemed some inconceivable escape, folly enough in this, far more if, as seemed sure, Alan had made the bomb himself, for then he would have to know its power was grossly inordinate to the need. But if it was not a bomb, had a different function, and only incidentally an explosive potential, Alan might underestimate the blast. It appeared the object was somehow remotely monitored by him, for the timing of events showed he had gone straight for it the instant he emerged from the shaft. Shunned the bus waiting to take his shift back to town, and made a beeline across the compound for a patrol car that was hidden from his view by the office building. This suggested something more complex than a mere explosive device, something perhaps whose destruction was itself more Alan's aim than the explosion produced thereby. The fact that he risked the spear's retrieval at all pointed to this interpretation. For the moment he sensed its presence at the mine,
he must have guessed that the murder investigation had led to its discovery and removal from his room. But then, knowing himself already liable to the extreme penalty, why should Allen go to such lengths to recapture evidence incriminatory of a lesser offence, possession of an explosive device? Then grant that the sphere was something more, something instrumental to his murders that could guarantee a conviction he might otherwise evade. Still his gambit made no sense. Since the sphere, and thus the lawman he could assume to have taken it, was already at the mine office, he must expect the compound to be scaled at any moment. Meanwhile the gate was open, escaping into the mountains a strong possibility for a man capable of stalking and destroying two experienced and well-armed woodsmen lying in ambush for him. Why had he all but ensured his capture to weaken a case against himself that his escape would have rendered irrelevant? Dr. Winters watched as his own fingers, like a hunting pack round a covert, converged on a small puncture wound below Walter Lou Jackson's xiphoid process, between the eighth ribs. His left hand touched its borders, the fingers' inquiry quick and tender. The right hand introduced a probe, and both together eased it into the wound. It was rarely fruitful to use a probe on corpses this decayed. The track of the wound would more properly be examined by section, but an inexplicable sense of urgency had taken hold of him. Gently, with infinite pains not to pierce in the softened tissues and artificial track of his own, he inched the probe in. It moved unobstructed deep into the body, curving upward through the diaphragm toward the heart. The doctor's own heart accelerated. He watched his hands move to record the observation, watched them pause, watched them return to their survey of the corpse, leaving pen and page untouched. External inspection revealed no further anomaly. All else, he observed, the doctor recorded faithfully, wondering throughout at the distress he felt. When he had finished, he understood it. Its cause was not the discovery of an entry wound that might bolster Waddleton's case, for the find had, within moments, revealed to him that, should he encounter anything he thought to be a mark of fragment penetration, he was going to ignore it. The damage Joe Allen had done was going to end here, with this last grand slaughter, and he would not extend to the impoverishment of his victim's survivors. His mind was now made up. For Jackson and the remaining seven, the external exams would be officially recorded as contraindicating the need for any external exam. No, the doctor's unease as he finished Jackson's external, as he wrote up his report and it signed it, had a different source. His problem was that he did not believe the puncture in Jackson's thorax was a mark of fragment entry. He disbelieved this, and had no idea why he did so. Nor had he any idea why, once again, he felt afraid. He sealed the report. Jackson was now officially accounted for and done with. Then Dr. Winters took up the post-mortem knife and returned to the corpse. 
First, the long, sawing slice, unzippering the mortal overcoat. Next, two great square flaps of flesh reflected, scrolled laterally to the armpit's line, disrobing the chest. One hand grasping the flap's skirt, the other sweeping beneath it with the knife, cleansing through the glassy tissue that joined it to the chest wall, and shaving all muscles from their anchorage to bone and cartilage beneath. Then the dismantling of the strong box within, rib shears so frank and forward a tool, like a gardener's. The steel beak bit through each rib's gristle anchor to the sternum's centre-plate. At the sternum's crown-piece the collarbone's ends were knifed, pried, and sprung free from their sockets. The coffer unhasped, unhinged, a knife teased beneath the lid and levered it off. Some minutes later the doctor straightened up and stepped back from his subject. He moved almost drunkenly, and his age seemed scored more deeply in his face. With loathing haste he stripped his gloves off. He went to his desk, sat down, and poured another drink. If there was something like horror in his face, there was also a hardening in his mouth's line and the muscles of his jaw. He spoke to his glass. So be it, your excellency. Something new for your humble servant. Testing my nerve. Johnson's pericardium, the shapely capsule containing his heart, should have been all but hidden between the big, blood-fat loaves of his lungs. The doctor had found it fully exposed, the lungs flanking it, wrinkled lumps less than a third of their natural bulk. Not only they, but the left heart and the superior mediastinal veins, all the regions that should have been grossly engorged with blood, were utterly drained of it. The doctor swallowed his drink and got out the photographs again. He found that Jackson had died on his stomach across the body of another worker, with the upper part of a third trapped between them. Neither these two subadjacent corpses nor the surrounding earth showed any stain of a blood loss that must have amounted to two litres. Possibly the pictures, by some trick of shadow, had failed to pick it up. He turned to the investigator's report, where Craven would surely have mentioned any significant amounts of bloody earth uncovered during the disinterment. The sheriff recorded nothing of the kind. Dr. Winters returned to the pictures. Ronald Pollock, Jackson's most intimate associate in the grave, had died on his back, beneath and slightly askew of Jackson, placing most of their torsos in contact, save where the head and shoulders of the third interposed. It seemed inconceivable that Pollock's clothing should lack any trace of such massive drainage from a deathmate thus embraced. The doctor rose abruptly, pulled on fresh gloves, and returned to Jackson. His hands showed a more brutal speed now, closing the great incision temporarily with a few widely spaced sutures. He replaced him in the vault and brought out Pollock, striding, heaving hard at the dead shapes in the shifting of them, thrusting always, so it seemed to him, just a step ahead of urgent thoughts he did not want to have, deformities that whispered at his back, emitting faint, chill gusts of putrid breath. He shook his head, denying delaying, and pushed the new corpse onto the work-table. The scissors undressed Pollock in greedy bites. But at length, 
when he had scanned each scrap of fabric and found nothing like the stain of blood, he came to rest again, relinquishing that simplest desired resolution he had made such haste to reach. He stood at the instrument table, not seeing it, submitting to the approach of the half-formed things at his mind's periphery. The revelation of Jackson's shriveled lungs had been more than a shock. He had felt a stab of panic, too, in fact the same curiously explicit terror of this place that had urged him to flee earlier. He acknowledged now that the germ of that quickly suppressed terror had been a premonition of this failure to find any trace of the missing blood. Whence the premonition? It had to do with a problem he had steadfastly refused to consider— the mechanics of so complete a drainage of the lung's densely reticulated vascular structure. Could the earth's crude pressure by itself work so thoroughly, given only a single vent both slender and strangely curved? And then the photograph he had studied. It frightened him now to recall the image. Some covert meaning stirred within it, struggling to be seen. Dr. Winters picked the probe up from the table and turned again to the corpse, as surely and exactly as if he had already ascertained the wound's presence. He leaned forward and touched it, a small, neat puncture just beneath the ziphoid process. He introduced the probe. The wound received it deeply in a familiar direction. The doctor went to the desk and took up the photograph again. Pollock's and Jackson's wounded areas were not in contact. The third man's head was sandwiched between their bodies at just that point. He searched out another picture, in which this third man was more central, and found his name inked in below his image, Joe Allen. Dreamingly, Dr. Winters went to the wide metal door, shoved it aside, entered the vault. He did not search, but went straight to the trestle where Sheriff Craven had paused some hours before. He found the same name on its tag. The body, beneath decay's spurious obesity, was trim and well-muscled. The face was square-cut, shelf-browed, with a vulpine nose skewed by an old fracture. The swollen tongue lay behind the teeth and the bulge of decomposition did not obscure what the man's initial impact must have been. Handsome and open, his now waxen black eyes sly and convivial. "'Say, good buddy, got a minute? I see you coming on the swing shift every day, don't I? Yeah, Joe Allen. Look, I know it's late. You want to get home, tell the wife you ain't been in there drinking since you got off, right? Oh, yeah, I hear that.' But this damn disappearance thing's got me so edgy. And I'd swear to God, just as I was coming here, I seen someone moving around back of that frame house up the street. See how the trees thin out a little down back of the yard, where the moonlight gets in? That's right. Well, I got me this little popper here. Oh yeah, that's a beauty. We'll have it covered between us. I knew I could spot a man ready for some trouble. Couldn't find a patrol car anywhere on the street. Yeah, just down in here now to that clump of pine. Step careful, you can barely see. That's right. The doctor's face ran with sweat. He turned on his heel and walked out of the vault, heaving the door shut behind him. In the office's greater warmth, he felt the perspiration soaking his shirt under the smock. 
His stomach rasped with steady oscillations of pain, but he scarcely attended it. He went to Pollock and seized up the post-mortem life. The work was done with surreal speed, the laminae of flesh and bone recoiling smoothly beneath his desperate but unerring hands, until the thoracic cavity lay exposed, and in it the vampire-stricken lungs, two gnarled lumps of grey tissue. He searched no deeper, knowing what the heart and veins would show. He returned to sit at the desk, weakly drooping, the knife, forgotten, still in his left hand. He looked at his reflection in the window, and it seemed his thoughts originated with that fainter, more tenuous Dr. Winters, hanging like a ghost outside. What was this world he lived in? Surely in a lifetime he had not begun to guess, to feed in such a way. There was horror enough in this alone, but to feed thus, in his own grave. How had he accomplished it? "'leaving aside how he had fought suffocation long enough to do anything at all. "'How was it to be comprehended? "'A greed that raged so hotly it would glut itself at the very threshold of its own destruction. "'That last feast was surely in his stomach still. "'Dr. Winters looked at the photograph, at Alan's head, "'snuggled into the other's middles, like a hungry suckling nuzzling to the sow.' Then he looked at the knife in his hand. The hand felt empty of all technique. Its one impulse was to slash, cleave, obliterate the remains of this gluttonous thing, this Joe Allen. He must do this, or flee it utterly. There was no course between. He did not move. "'I will examine him,' said the ghost in the glass." and did not move. Inside the refrigeration vault there was a slight noise. No. It had been some hitch in the generator's murmur. Nothing in there could move. There was another noise, a brief friction against the vault's inner wall. The two old men shook their heads at one another. A catch clicked, and the metal door slid open. Behind the staring image of his own amazement, the doctor saw that a filthy shape stood in the doorway and raised its arms towards him in a gesture of supplication. From the shape came a whistling groan, the decayed fragment of a human voice. Pleadingly, Joe Allen worked his jaw and spread his purple hands, as if speech were a maggot struggling to emerge from his mouth, the blue tumescent face toiled, the huge tongue wallowed helplessly between the viscid lips. The doctor reached for the telephone, lifted the receiver. Its deadness to his ear meant nothing. He could not have spoken. The thing confronting him, with each least movement that it made, destroyed the very frame of sanity in which words might have meaning, reduced the world itself around him to a waste of dark and silence, a starlit ruin where already... Everywhere, the alien and unimaginable was awakening to its new dominion. The corpse raised and reached out one hand as if to stay him, turned and walked toward the instrument table. Its legs were leaden, it rocked its shoulders like a swimmer, fighting to make its passage through gravity's dense medium. It reached the table and grasped it exhaustedly. 
the doctor found himself on his feet, crouched slightly, weightlessly still. The knife in his hand was the only part of himself he clearly felt, and it was like a tongue of fire, a crematory flame. Joe Allen's corpse thrust one hand among the instruments. The thick fingers with a queer simian ineptitude brought up a scalpel. Both hands clasped the little handle and plunged the blade between the lips, as a thirsty child might a popsicle, then jerked it out again, slashing the tongue. Turbid fluid splashed down to the floor. The jaw worked stiffly. The mouth brought out words in a wet, ragged hiss. Please, help me. Trapped in this. One dead hand struck the dead chest. Starving. What are you? Please, help me. Trapped in this. One dead hand struck the dead chest. Starving. What are you? Traveller, not of earth. An eater of human flesh, a drinker of human blood. No, no, hiding only, am small. Shape hideous to you, feared death. You brought death. The doctor spoke with a calm of perfect disbelief, himself as incredible to him as the thing he spoke with. It shook its head, the dull, popped eyes glaring with an agony of thwarted expression. Killed none, hid in this, hid in this, not to be killed. Five days now, drowning in decay, free me, please. No. You have come to feed on us. You're not hiding in fear. We're your food, your meat and drink. You fed on those two men within your grave, their grave. For you, a delay. In fact, a diversion that has ended the hunt for you. No, no. Used men already dead. For me, five days, starvation. Even less, fed only from need, horrible necessity. The spoiled vocal instrument made a mangled gasp of the last word, an inhuman snake-pit noise the doctor felt as a cold flicker of ophidian tongues within his ears, while the dead arms moved in a sodden approximation of the body language that swears truth. No, the doctor said, you killed them all. "'including your tool, this man. "'What are you?' "'Panic erupted in the question "'that he tried to bury by answering himself instantly. "'Resolute, yes, that surely. "'You use death for an escape route. "'You need no oxygen, perhaps. "'Extracted more than my need from gases of decay, "'a lesser component of our metabolism.' "'The voice was gaining distinctness.' "'developing makeshifts for tones lost in the agonal rupturing of the valves and stops of speech, "'more effectively wrestling vowel and consonant from the putrid tongue and lips. "'At the same time the body's crudity of movement did not quite obscure a subtle, incessant experimentation. 
fingers flexed and stirred, testing the give of tendons, groping the palm for old points of purchase and counter-pressure there. The knees, with cautious repetitions, assessed the new limits of their articulation. What was the sphere? My ship! Its destruction! Our first duty! Facing discovery! Fear touched the doctor, like a slug climbing his neck. He had seen, as it spoke, a sharp, spastic activity of the tongue, a pleating and shrinkage of its bulk, as the tug of some inward adjustment. No chance to re-enter. Leaving this body takes far too long. Not even time to set it for destruct. Must extrude a cilium, chemical key to broach hull shield. In shaft was my only chance to halt my host. Though the dead mask hung expressionless, conveyed no irony, the thing's articulacy grew uncannily. Each word was more smoothly shaped, nuances of tone creeping into its speech. Its right arm tested its wrist as it spoke, and the scalpel the hand still held cut white sparks from the air, while the word host seemed itself a little razor cut, an almost teasing abandonment of fiction preliminary to attack. But the doctor found that fear had gone from him. But the doctor found that fear had gone from him. The impossibility with which he conversed, and was about to struggle, was working in him an overwhelming amplification of his life's long helpless rage at death. He found his parochial pity for earth alone stretched to the trans-telescope this traveller commanded, to the whole cosmic trash-yard with its bulldozed multitudes of corpses, galactic wheels of carnage, stars, planets with their most majestic generations, all trash, cracked bones, and foul rags that pooled, settled, reconcatenated in futile symmetries gravid with new multitudes of briefly animate trash. And this, standing before him now, was the death it was given him particularly to deal. His might was being called in by the universal treasury of death, and Dr. Winters found himself, an old healer, on fire to pay, his own more lethal blade tugged at his hand with its own sharp appetite. He felt entirely the examiner once more, knew the precise cuts he would make, swiftly and without error. Very soon now, he thought, and coolly probed for some further insight before its onslaught. Why must your ship be destroyed, even at the cost of your host's life? We must not be understood! The livestock must not understand what is devouring them. Yes, Doctor. Not all at once, but one by one. You will understand what is devouring you. That is essential to my feast. The Doctor shook his head. You are in your grave already, Traveller. That body will be your coffin. "'You will be buried in it a second time, for all time.' "'The thing came one step nearer and opened its mouth. "'The flabby throat wrestled as with speech. 
but what sprang out was a slender white filament, more than whip-fast. Dr. Winters saw only the first flicker of its eruption, and then his brain novered, thinning out at light speed to a white nullity. When the doctor came to himself, it was in fact to a part of himself only. Before he had opened his eyes he found that his wakened mind had repossessed proprioceptively only a bizarre truncation of his body. His head, neck, left shoulder arm, his head, neck, left shoulder, arm and hand declared themselves. The rest was silence. When he opened his eyes, he found he found that he lay supine on the gurney and naked. Something propped his head. A strap bound his left elbow to the gurney's edge, a strap he could feel. His chest was also anchored by a strap, and this he could not feel. Indeed, save for its active remnant, his entire body might have been bound in a block of ice. So numb was it, and so powerless was he to compel the slightest movement from the least part of it. The room was empty, but from the open door of the vault there came slight sounds. The creak and soft frictions of heavy tarpaulin shifted to accommodate some business involving small clicking and kissing noises. Tears of fury filled the doctor's eyes. Clenching his one fist at the starry engine of creation that he could not see, he ground his teeth and whispered in the hot breath of strangled weeping. Take it back, this dirty little shred of life. I throw it off gladly, like the filth it is. The slow knock of boot soles loudened from within the vault, and he turned his head. From the vault door Joe Allen's corpse approached him. It moved with new energy, though its gait was grotesque, a ducking, hitching progress, jerky with circumventions of decayed muscle, while above this galvanized, struggling frame the bruise-coloured face hung inanimate, an image of detachment. With terrible clarity the thing was revealed for what it was. A damaged hand-puppet vigorously worked from within, and when that frozen face was brought to hang above the doctor, the reeking hands, with the light, solicitous touch of friends at sick-beds, rested on his naked thigh. The absence of sensation made the touch more dreadful than it felt. It showed him that the nightmare he still desperately denied at heart had annexed his body while he, holding head and arm free, had already more than half drowned in its mortal paralysis. There, from his chest on down, lay his nightmare part, a nothingness freely possessed by an unspeakability. The corpse said, Rotten blood, thin nourishment. I had only one hour alone before you came. I fed from my neighbour to my left, barely had strength to extend a siphon, fed from the right while you worked. Tricky going. You are alert. I expected Dr. Parsons. The energy needs of animating this. One hand left the doctor's thigh and smote the dusty overalls. 
and of host transfer very high. Once I have you synapsed, I will be near starvation again. A sequence of unbearable images unfolded in the doctor's mind, even as the robot carrion turned from the gurney and walked to the instrument table. The sheriff's arrival just after dawn, alone of course, since Craven always took thought for his deputy's rest, and because on this errand he would want privacy to consider any indiscretion on behalf of the minor survivors that the situation might call for. Craven's finding his old friend, supine and alarmingly weak, his hurrying over, his leaning near. Then somewhat later a police car containing a rack of still wet bones might plunge off the highway above some deep spot in the gorge. The corpse took an evidence box from the table and put the scalpel in it. Then it turned and retrieved the mortuary knife from the floor and put that in as well, saying as it did so, without turning. "'The sheriff will come in the morning. You spoke like close friends. He will probably come alone.' The coincidence with his thoughts had to be accident but the intent to terrify and appall him was clear. The tone and timing of that patched-up voice was unmistakably deliberate. Sly probes that sought his anguish specifically, sought his mind's personal centre. He watched the corpse, over at the table, dipping an apish but accurate hand and plucking up rib-shears, scissors, clamps, adding all to the box. He stared, momentarily emptied by shock of all but the will to know finally the full extent of the horror that had appropriated his life. Joe Allen's body carried the box to the work-table beside the gurney, and the expressionless eyes met the doctor's. "'I have gambled, a grave gamble, but now I have won. At risk of personal discovery, we are obliged to disconnect, contract, hide as well as possible in the host body. Suicide in effect. I disregarded situational imperatives, despite starvation before disinterment and subsequent autopsy being all but certain. I caught up with the crew, tackled Pollock and Jackson, microseconds before the blast. I computed five days' survival from this cash. I could disconnect at limit of my strength to do so, but otherwise I would chance autopsy, knowing the doctor was an alcoholic incompetent. And now see my gain— you are a prize host. Through you, I can feed with near impunity even when killing is too dangerous. Safe meals are delivered to you still warm. The corpse had painstakingly aligned the gurney parallel to the work table, but offset, the table's foot extending past the gurney's, and separated from it by a distance somewhat less than the reach of Joe Allen's right arm. Now the dead hands distributed the implements along the right edge of the table, save for the scissors and the box. These the corpse took to the table's foot, 
where it set down the box and slid the scissors' jaws round one strap of its overalls. It began to speak again, and as it did, the scissors dismembered its cerements in unhesitating strokes. The cut must be medical, forensically right, though a smaller one is easier. I must be careful of the pectoral muscles, or these arms will not convey me. I am no lava any more. Over fifteen hundred grams. To ease the nightmare's suffocating pressure, to thrust out some flicker of his own will against its engulfment, the doctor flung a question, his voice more cracked than the other's now was. Why is my arm free? The last fine neural splicing needs a sensory motor standard to perfect my brain's fit to yours. Lacking this eye-hand coordinating check, only a much coarser control of the host's characteristic motor patterns is possible. This done, I flush out the paralytic, unbind us, and we are free together. The grave clothes had fallen in a puzzle of fragments, and the cadaver stood naked, its dark, gas-rounded contours making it seem like some sleek marine creature, rudded with the black-veined, gas-distended sex. Again the voice had teased for his fear, had uttered the last word with a savouring protraction, and now the doctor's cup of anguish brimmed over. Horror and outrage wrenched his spirit in brutal alternation, as if trying to tear it naked from its captive frame. He rolled his head in this deadlock, his mouth beginning to split with the slow birth of a mind-emptying outcry. The corpse watched this, giving a single nod that might have been approbation. Then it mounted the work-table, and with the concentrated caution of some practised convalescent re-entering his bed, lay on its back. The dead eyes again sought the living, and found the doctor staring back, grinning insanely. "'Clever corpse!' the doctor cried. "'Clever, carnivorous corpse! Able, alien! Please don't think I'm criticising. Who am I to criticise? A mere arm and shoulder, a talking head, just a small piece of a pathologist. But I'm confused.' He paused, savouring the monster's attentive silence and his own buoyancy in the hysterical levity that had unexpectedly liberated him. "'You are going to use your puppet there to pluck you out of itself and put you on me. But once he's pulled you from the driver's seat—but once he's pulled you from your driver's seat— won't he go dead, so to speak, and drop you? You could get a nasty knock. Why not set a plank between the tables? The puppet opens the door, and you scuttle, ooze, lurch, flop, slither, as the case may be, across the bridge. No messy spills. And in any case, isn't this an odd, rather clumsy way to get around among your cattle? Shouldn't you at least carry your own scalpels when you travel? There's always the risk you'll run across that one host in a million that isn't carrying one with him. 
he knew his jibes would be answered to his own despair. He exulted, but solely in the momentary bafflement of the predator, in having for just a moment mocked its gloating assurance to silence and marred its feast. Its right hand picked up the post-mortem knife beside it, and the left wedged a roll of gauze beneath Alan's neck, lifting the throat to a more prominent arch. The mouth told the ceiling. We retain larval form till entry of the host. As larvae, we have locomotor structures and sense buds usable outside our ship's sensory amplifiers. I waited, coiled round Joe Allen's bed leg till night, entered by his mouth as he slept. Alan's hand lifted the knife, held it high above the dull, quick eyes, turning it in the light. Once lodged, we have three instars to adult form, the voice continued absently. The knife might have been a mirror from which the corpse read its features. Lovely, we have only a sketch of our full neural tap. Our metamorphosis is cued and determined by the host's endosomatic ecology. I matured in three days. Alan's wrist flexed, tipping the knife's point downmost. Most supreme adaptations are purchased at the cost of inessential capacities. The elbow pronated and slowly flexed. "'hooking the knife bodyward. "'Our hosts are all sentience, eco-dominance, "'are already carrying the baggage of coping structures "'for the planetary environment we find them in. "'Limbs, sensory portals.' "'The fist planted the fang of its tool under the chin, "'tilted it, and rode it smoothly down the throat. "'the voice proceeding unmowered from under the furrow that the steel ploughed. "'Somatic envelopes, instrumentalities.' "'Down the sternum, diaphragm, abdomen, the stainless blade "'painted its stripe of gaping muddy tissue. "'With our host's brain, we inherit all these, "'the mastery of any planet.' "'netted in its dominant cerebral nexus. "'Thus, our genetic codings are now all but disencumbered of such provisions.' "'So swiftly that the doctor flinched, "'Joe Allen's hand slashed four lateral cuts from the great wound's axis. "'The seeming butchery left two flawlessly drawn thoracic flaps cleanly outlined.' The left hand raised the left flap's hem, and the right coaxed the knife into the aperture, deepening it with small stabs and slices. The posture was a man's who searches a breast pocket, with the dead eyes studying the slow recoil of flesh. The voice, when it resumed, had geared up to an intenser pitch. Galactically... The caudate nerve-brain paradigm abounds, and the neural labyrinth is our dominion. 
Are we to make plank bridges and worm across them to our food? Are cockroaches greater than we for having legs to run up walls and antennae to grope their way? All the quaint hinged crutches that life sports. The stilts, fins, fans, springs, stalks, flippers and feathers all in turn so variously terminating in hooks, clamps, suckers, scissors, forks, or little cages of digits. And beside all the gadgets it concocts for wrestling through its worlds, it is all knobbed, whiskered, crested, plumed, vented, spiked, or measled over with the perceptual gear for combining pittances of noise or colour from the environing plenitude. Invincibly calm and sure, the hands traded tool and tasks, the right flap eased back, revealing ropes of ingeniously spared muscle while promising a genuine appearance once sutured back in place. Helplessly the doctor felt his delirious defiance bleed away, and a bleak fascination rebind him. We are the taps and relays that share the host's aggregate of affluent nerve impulse, precisely at its nodes of integration. We are the brains that peruse these integrations, integrate them with our existing banks of host-specific data, and lastly let their consequences flow down the motor pathway. Either the consequences they seek spontaneously, or those we wish to graft upon them. We are besides a streamlined, alimentary, circulatory system, and a reproductive apparatus, and more than this, we need not be. The corpse had spread its bloody vest, and the feculent hands now took up the rib shears. The voice's sinister coloration of pitch and stress grew yet more marked. The phrases slid from the tongue with a cobra-seeking sway, winding their liquid rhythms round the doctor, till a gasp in his resistance should let them pour through to slaughter the little courage left in him. For in this form we have inhabited the densest brain-web of three hundred races, lain intricately snug within them, like thriving vine on trellis work. We've looked out from too many variously windowed masks to regret our own vestigial senses. None read their words definitively. Far better than our nomad's range and choice, than an unvarying tenancy of one poor set of structures. Far better to slip on as we do, whole living beings, and wear at once all of their limbs and organs, memories and powers, where all these as tightly congruent to our wills as a glove is to the hand that fills it. The shears clipped through the gristle, stolid, bloody jaws monotonously feeding. 
stopping short of the sternoclavicular joint in the manubrium, where the muscles of the pectoral girdle have an important anchorage. No consciousness of the chordate type that we have found has been impermeable to our finesse. No dendritic pattern so elaborate we could not read its stitchwork and thread ourselves to match. Precisely map its each synaptic seam till we could loosen it and retailer all to suit ourselves. We have strutted costumed in the bodies of planetary autarchs, venerable mannequins of moral fashion, but cut of the universal cloth, the weave of fleet electric filaments of experience that we easily reshuttle to the warp of our wishes, whereafter, newly hemmed and gathered, their living fabric hung obedient to our bias, investing us with honour and influence unlimited. The tricky verbal melody, through the corpse's deft, unfaltering self-dismemberment, the sheer neuromuscular orchestration of the compound activity, struck Dr. Winters with the detached enthrallment great keyboard performers could bring him. He glimpsed the alien's perspective, a Gulliver waiting in a Brobdingnagian grave, then marshalling a dead giant against a living, like a dwarf in a huge mechanical crane, feverishly programming combat on a battery of levers and pedals, waiting for the robot arms' enactments, the remote, titanic impact of the foes. And he marvelled, filled with a bleak wonder at life's infinite strategy and plasticity. Joe Allen's hands reached into his half-opened abdominal cavity, reached deep below the uncut anterior muscle that was exposed by the shallow, spurious incision of the epidermis, till by external measure they were extended far enough to be touching his thighs. The voice was still as the forearms advertised a delicate rummaging with the buried fingers. The shoulders drew back. As the steady withdrawal brought the wrists into view, the dead legs tremored and quaked with diffuse spasms. "'You called your kind our food and drink, Doctor. "'If you were merely that, an elementary usurpation of your motor tracts alone would satisfy us, "'give us perfect cattle control. "'For what rarest word or subtlest behaviour is more than a flurry of varied muscles? "'That trifling skill was ours long ago.' It is not mere blood that feeds this lust I feel now to tenant you. The craving for an intimacy the years will not stale. My truest feast lies in compelling you to feed in that way. It lies in the utter deformation of your will this will involve. Had gross nourishment been my prime need, then my grave mates, Pollock and Jackson, "'could have eked out two weeks of life for me, or more. "'But I scorned a cowardly parsimony in the face of death. "'I reinvested more than half the energy that their blood gave me "'in fabricating chemicals to keep their brains alive, "'and fluid bathed with 
oxygenated nutriment. The corpse reached into its gaping abdomen, and out of its cloven groin the smeared hands pulled two long skeins of silvery filament. The material looked like masses of nerve fibre, tough and scintillant, for the weave of it glittered with a slight incessant movement of each single thread. Those nerve skeins were contracting. They thickened into two swollen nodes, while at the same time the corpse's legs tremored and faintly twitched, as the bright vermiculate roots of the parasite withdrew from within Alan's musculature. When the nodes lay fully contracted, the doctor could just see their tips within the abdomen. Then the legs lay still as death. I had accessory neural taps only to spare, but I could access much memory and all of their cognitive responses, and having in my banks all the organ of Corti's electrochemical conversions of English words, I could whisper anything to them directly into the eighth cranial nerve. Those are our true feast, Doctor. Such bodiless electric storms of impotent cognition as I tickled up in those two little bone globes. I was forced to drain them just before disinterment, but they lived till then and understood everything, everything I did to them. When the voice paused, the dead and living eyes were locked together. They remained so a moment, and then the dead face smiled. It recapitulated all the horror of Alan's first resurrection, this waking of expressive soul in that purple death-mask. And it was a demon soul the doctor saw awaken. The smile was barbed with fine, sharp hooks of cruelty at the corners of the mouth, while the barbed eyes beamed fond, languorous anticipation of his pain. Remotely Dr. Winters heard the flat sound of his own voice asking, and Joe Allen? Oh, yes, Doctor. He is with us now, has been throughout. I grieve to abandon so rare a host. He is a true hermit philosopher, well read in four languages. He is writing a translation of Marcus Aurelius. He was, I mean, in his free time. Long minutes succeeded of the voice accompanying the surreal self-autopsy, but the doctor lay resigned, emptied of reactive power. Still the full understanding of his fate reverberated in his mind as the parasite sketched his future for him in that borrowed voice. And it did not stop haunting Winters, the sense of what a virtuoso this entity was, how flawlessly this mass of neural fibres played the tricky instrument of human speech. As flawlessly as it had puppeteered the corpse's face into that ghastly smile, and with the same artistic aim, to waken, to amplify, to ripen its host-to-be's outrage and horror. The voice, with ever more melody and gloating verve, sent waves of realisation through the doctor, amplifications of the unspeakable. The parasite's race, 
had traced and tapped the complex interface between the cortical integration of sense input and the neural output governing response. It had interposed its brain between, sharing consciousness while solely commanding the pathways of reaction. The host, the bottled personality, was mute and limbless for any least expression of its own will, while hellishly articulate and agile in the surface of the parasites. It was the host's own hands that bound and wrenched the life half out of his prey, his own loins that experienced the repeated orgasms crowning his other despoliations of their bodies. And when they lay, bound and shrieking still, ready for the consummation, it was his own strength that hauled the smoking entrails from them, and his own intimate tongue and guzzling mouth he plunged into the rank, palpitating feast. And the doctor had glimpses of the racial history that underlay the alien's predatory present. Glimpses of a dispassionate, inquiring breed, so advanced in the analysis of its own mental fabric that, through scientific commitment and genetic self-sculpting, it had come to embody its own model of perfected consciousness. It had grown streamlined to permit its entry of other beings and its direct acquisition of their experiential worlds. All strictest scholarship at first, until there matured in the disembodied scholars their long germinal and now blazing, jealous hatred for all lesser minds rooted and clothed in the soil and sunlight of solid, particular worlds. The parasite spoke of the cerebral music, the symphonies of agonized paradox, that were its invasion's chief plunder. The doctor felt the truth behind this grandiloquence, the parasite's actual harvest from the systematic violation of encoffined personalities was the experience of a barren supremacy of means over lives more primitive, perhaps, but vastly wealthier in the vividness and passionate concern with which life for them was imbued. The corpse had reached into its thorax, and with its dead hands aided the parasite's retraction of its upper-body root system. More and more of its livid mass had gone dead, until only its head and the arm nearer the doctor remained animate, while the silvery, worming mass grew in its bleeding abdominal nest. Then Joe Allen's face grinned, and his hand hoisted up the nude, regathered parasite from his sundered gut and held it for the doctor to view, his tenant-to-be. Winter saw that from the squirming mass of nerve cold, one thick filament still draped down, remaining anchored in the canyoned chest toward the upper spine. This, he understood, would be the remote control line by which it could work at a distance the crane of its old host's body, transferring itself to winters by means of a giant apparatus it no longer inhabited. This, he knew, was his last moment. Before his own personal horror should begin and engulf him, he squarely met the corpse's eyes and said, "'Good-bye, Joe Allen. Eddie Sykes, I mean. I hope he gave you strength, the golden Marcus. I love him, too. You are guiltless. Peace be with you at the last.' The demon smile stayed fixed, but effortlessly, Winters looked through it to the real eyes, those of the encoffined man, 
tormented eyes, foreseeing death, and craving it. The grinning corpse reached out its viscid cargo, a seething, rippling, multinodular lump that completely filled the erstwhile lawyer's roomy palm. It reached this across and laid it on the doctor's groin. He watched the hand set the bright Medusa's head, his new self, on his own skin, but felt nothing. He watched the dead hand return to the table, take up the scalpel, reach back over and make a twelve-inch incision up his abdomen, along his spinal axis. It was a deep, slow cut, sectioning just straight down through the abdominal wall, and it proceeded in the eerie, utter absence of physical sensation. The moment this was done, the fibre that had stayed anchored in the corpse snapped free, whipped back across the gap, and rejoined the main body that now squirmed towards the incision, its port of entry. The corpse collapsed, emptied of all innovating energy. It sagged slack and flaccid, of course. Or had it? Why was it? That nearer arm was supinated, both elbow and wrist at the full upturned twist the palm lay open offering the scalpel still lay in the palm simple death would have dropped the arm earthward it would now hang slack with a blaze like a nova of light winters understood the man sykes had for a microsecond before his end repossessed himself had flung a dying impulse of his will down through his rotten, fading muscles, and had managed a single independent gesture in the narrow interval between the demon's departure and his own death. He had clutched the scalpel and flung out his arm, locking the joints as life left him. It rekindled Winter's own will, lit a fire of rage and vengefulness. He had caught hope from his predecessor. How precariously the scalpel lay on the loosened fingers. The slightest tremor would unfix the arm's joints. It would fall and hang and drop the scalpel down farther than Hell's deepest recess from his grasp. And he could see that the scalpel was just, only just, in the reach of his fingers at his forearm's fullest stretch from the bound elbow. The horror crouched on him, and even now slowly feeding its trunk-line into his groin incision, at first stopped the doctor's hand with a pang of terror. Then he reminded himself that, until implanted, the enemy was a senseless mass, bristling with plugs, with input jacks for senses, but, until installed in the physical amplifiers of eyes and ears, an utterly deaf-blind monad that waited in a perfect solipsism between two captive sensory envelopes. He saw his straining fingers above the bright tool of freedom, thought with an insane smile of God and Adam on the Sistine ceiling, and then, with a lifespan of surgeon's fine control, plucked up the scalpel. The arm fell and hung. Sleep, the doctor said. Sleep revenged but he found his retaliation harshly reined in by the alien's careful provisions. His elbow had been fixed with his upper arm almost at right angles to his body's long axis. His forearm could reach his hand inward and present it closely to the face, suiting the parasite's need of an eye-hand coordinative check, 
but could not, even with the scalpel's added reach, bring its point within four inches of his groin. Steadily the parasite fed in its tapline. It would use up motor control in three or four minutes at most, to judge by the time its extrication from Alan had taken. Frantically the doctor bent his wrist inward to its limit, trying to pick through the strap where it crossed his inner elbow. Sufficient pressure was impossible, and the hold so awkward that even feeble attempts threatened the loss of the scalpel. Smoothly the root of alien control sank into him. It was a defenceless thing of jelly against which he lay lethally armed, and he was still doomed. A preview of all his thrall's impotence to be. But of course there was a way. Not to survive, but to escape and to have vengeance. For a moment he stared at his captor, hardening his metal in the blaze of hate it lit in him. Then, swiftly, he determined the order of his moves, and began. He reached the scalpel to his neck, and opened his superior thyroid vein, his inkwell. He laid the scalpel by his ear, dipped his finger in his blood, and began to write on the metal surface of the gurney, beginning by his thigh and moving toward his armpit. Oddly, the incision of his neck, though this was muscularly awake, had been painless, which gave him hopes that raised his courage for what remained to do. When he had done, the message read, Alien, in, me, cut, kill. He wanted to write goodbye to his friend, but the alien had begun to pay out smaller auxiliary filaments collaterally with the main one, and all now lay in speed. He took up the scalpel, rolled his head to the left, and plunged the blade deep in his ear. Miracle! Last accidental mercy! It was painless. Some procedural, highly specific anaesthetic was in effect. With careful plunges, he obliterated the right inner ear, and then thrust silence with equal thoroughness into the left. The slashing of the vocal cords followed, then the tendons in the back of the neck that held it erect. He wished he were free to unstring knees and elbows, too, but it could not be. But, blinded, death, with centres of balance lost, with only rough motor control, all these conditions should fetter the alien's escape. Should it in the first place manage the reanimation of a bloodless corpse in which it had not yet achieved a fine-tuned interweave? Before he extinguished his eyes, he paused, the scalpel poised above his face, and blinked them to clear his aim of tears. The right, then the left, both retinas meticulously carved away, the yoke of vision quite scooped out of them. The scalpel's last task, once it had tilted the head sideways to guide the blood flow, absolutely clear of possible effacement of the message, was to slash the external carotid artery. When this was done, the old man sighed with relief, and laid his scalpel down. Even as he did so, he felt the deep inward prickle of an alien energy, something that flared, crackled, flared, groped for, but did not quite find its purchase. And inwardly, as the doctor sank toward sleep, cerebrally, as a voiceless man must speak, 
he spoke to the parasite these carefully chosen words. Welcome to your new house. I'm afraid there's been some vandalism. The lights don't work, and the plumbing has a very bad leak. There are some other things wrong as well. The neighbourhood is perhaps a little too quiet, and you may find it hard to get around very easily. But it's been a lovely home to me for fifty-seven years, and somehow I think you'll stay. The face turned toward the body of Joe Allen, seemed to weep scarlet tears. But its last movement before death was to smile. Okay, before we go, some of the stuff that we talk about at the end of the episode was for last Sunday's episode. My computer broke down and I didn't have a hope in hell of getting this episode done. So, now it is done. And thank God it is. Ignore the stuff that's old stuff. I just decided to leave it on anyway because it was played smooth. I did edit a little bit out at the end, but I added some new. So thank you for listening and see you tomorrow night in Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you very much, everybody. Good night. God bless. And make sure to keep your brain-proof helmets on tomorrow night because you never know who...